special dedication, Wendell Wallace here. Before I begin my podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, the latest episode, just want to be giving a shout out for those who have been downloading, rating, reviewing, subscribing, following the most entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast. Make sure you put in Wendell's World in Sports and enjoy. So, special dedication for those who have been listening in Brazil. Special dedication for those who have been listening in Pakistan. Special dedication for those who have been listening in Australia. Special dedication for those who have been listening in Canada. Special dedication for those who have been listening in Las Vegas, Nevada. Special dedication for those who have been listening in Ashburn, Virginia. Special dedication for those who have been listening in Pennsylvania. Special dedication for those who have been listening all around the globe. Remember, for the most passionate, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to, rate, review, download, follow, subscribe, Wendell's World of Sports. I appreciate it so much. Now, with that being said, let's go ahead. Let's start this party. Let's start this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tips in. Giannis tips it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Ruin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Rip Roaring, ready to go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. What is happening, man? What is going on? Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. So doggone glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos. Mi amo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste, konnichiwa, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. I hope that you're doing fantastic. I hope that you're doing awesome. I hope that you're doing everything that needs to be done to make your world, to make your block, to make your neighborhood, to make your household, to make your place of employment, to make where you hang out a better place to be, doing it through love, unity, understanding, respect, listening, learning, having those difficult conversations. Shut up. Listen learn, respect what that person is saying despite the difference in skin color, despite the difference in background, despite the difference of where you live, despite the differences that you might have, the person that you may love, the God that you may worship, if you worship one, please just shut up, listen, learn, please, so we can move this society along, so we can educate ourselves and have respect for others who might not look like us, who might come from a different uh, background than us. Shut up and listen to them, please, so we can move this society along through love, through peace, through unity, harmony, understanding, education, knowledge, respect for others. Too late for my society, 52 years old, too late for my generation, excuse me, I'm 52 years old, too late for us. I live in a country where it's too racist, too divided, too ignorant, too selfish for me to live in a society for the rest of my days or what I would like to uh, live in. But uh, for our children, for the children's children and their children and their children and their children, let's see what we can do to uh, make sure that they have the understanding, that they have the intelligence, that they have the knowledge, that they have 
the education of diversity, the acknowledgement of the difference, but yet we still treat them the same the way that we would want to be treated. Let's see if we can go ahead and build those values in them, something that we are unable to, uh, as a society for my generation, your generation, the generation before and after, we've been unable to accomplish. So if we can't do it for ourselves, let's do it for those who are going to be carrying this world to um, the 22nd century and beyond. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, let's go ahead. Let's get into some NFL action. Week six, um, the game of the week, what was it supposed to be going into Sunday? Wasn't it supposed to be the Los Angeles Chargers and the Baltimore Ravens, two teams that were 4-1, two teams that had young franchise-type quarterbacks, two Franchise-type quarterbacks who were playing near an MVP level. This was supposed to be a, I wouldn't say a definitive game because, again, we're only speaking about six, you know, week six. We're only speaking about five games into the season up to that point. But uh, it was supposed to be a really good gauge game in terms of where not only those two quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson and Justin Herbert, stood, but also where the Baltimore Ravens and the Los Angeles Chargers stood. Well, if we're going to be taking a look at the uh, outcome on Sunday, uh, we could say as of right now that the Baltimore Ravens might be a little bit further along than the Los Angeles Chargers. Now, this is just one game, and we've seen teams who right now are doing very well uh, have slip-ups and look very badly. Go see the uh, Green Bay Packers for uh, that analysis. But um, the Ravens are blowing out the Chargers. 34-6, fifth win in a row, the fight for the lead in the MVP race between two quarterbacks ended with a decisive clear-cut victory and from the game itself uh for the entire game the Ravens dominated the Los Angeles Chargers like Tyson Fury did Deontay Wilder last week in Las Vegas decisive clear-cut KO'd them no question no doubt about it complete game complete game the best game for Baltimore through six weeks of the season. 27 first downs for them, 14 by rushing, 12 by passing, went six for 11 on third down conversions, ran the ball 38 times. The team that for years upon years, especially when Lamar Jackson took center stage at the quarterback for the team, the Baltimore Ravens led the league in rushing and were relying on that running game. Their bread and butter, if I could use that cliche, ran the ball 38 times, passed it 27 times, ran for 187 yards on an average of five yards per carry. Four Ravens had at least eight carries between them, though this wasn't Lamar Jackson going for a buck 46 on 15 carries. Devonta Freeman, nine carries, 53 yards in the touchdowns. Uh, Murray at nine carries, 44 yards, and a touchdown. Jackson, Lamar, eight carries, 51 yards. Le'Veon Bell, Le'Veon Bell. Yes, Le'Veon Bell, eight carries, 18 yards. Le'Veon Bell is still collecting checks, trying to recoup that money that he lost when he set out a year with the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. But he's still somewhat valuable, eight carries for 18 yards. Baltimore controlled the ball for 38 minutes. And I forgot to mention Murray is Latavius Murray, nine carries for 44 yards and a touchdown. The Ravens set the tone right from the first possession of the ball game, drove 90 yards, 12 plays, took six and a half minutes off the board, 14-yard run by Murray, 7-0, took advantage of the weak run defense by the Chargers, and then in the second quarter, um, eight-yard run by Le'Veon Bell, yes, Le'Veon Bell, yes, Steeler fans, that Le'Veon Bell, yes, Jet fans, that Le'Veon Bell, yes, Kansas City football team fans, yes, that Le'Veon Bell, eight-yard TD run, 74-yard drive, 
Eight plays, made it 14 to nothing. Halftime, Baltimore was leading 17 to 6. The game firmly, firmly in their control. Then midway through the third quarter, Mark Andrews, one of the more underrated tight ends in the league, caught a nine-yard TD pass from Jackson, taking over seven minutes off the clock on the drive to make the score 24 to 6. The way that Ravens defense was playing, you knew that this game was over. Then Devonta Friedman scored on a nine-yard TD run to begin the fourth to make the score 34-6, to and it was garbage time after that time for the announcers to bring out their jokes and their stories and everything else to try to keep you occupied. If you had Red Zone, you said, thank you, Jesus, moved on to something else. If you had Direct TV, you said, thank you, Buddha, and moved on to something else. And if you're uh, just not into football at all, you said, thank you very much. I don't believe in nothing. Let me just go on and do some gardening. Welcome to the meat of the MVP race through six games, Mr. Lamar Jackson. It's interesting, you know, because again, it's six weeks into the season. Last uh, season, Russell Wilson was the uh, clear-cut favorite at this time, but now moving on 12 months later, Lamar Jackson entering his name in terms of consideration for the MVP. Not spectacular in terms of the statistics like it was on Monday night. He didn't have to uh, account for 95% of the offense on this day because of the complete game that the offense showed with the Ravens, but 19 of 27, 167, one touchdown, two interceptions, solid, but uh, not spectacular, that's fine, that's fine, the totality of the game itself didn't require for Lamar to go straight Superman on everybody, but when you go ahead, you take a look at one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why Baltimore is in the position that they're in right now is because of Lamar Jackson, especially if you take a look at some of the skill players that he has, the rash of injuries that have been, you know, hampered, that have really hampered the uh, Ravens when you're speaking about the running back position. I mean, I can only think of maybe the Cleveland Browns who have suffered more debilitating injuries at the current pace right now than the than the Ravens. And we see how Cleveland is falling off the map. I'll get to them in the second segment. But yeah, when we're speaking about Baltimore, being 5-1, and one, we're speaking about the MVP almost all the time. There's very little precedent for an MVP being on a team that's average, below average, or slightly above average. And what the Ravens are doing, despite the weakness of the running back position, getting you know guys off the street, Devonta Freeman, I mean, the last time I heard about him, he was with the Atlanta Falcons. Le'Veon Bell, I mean, we already heard about his nonsense, and, and Latavius Murray, far from being one of the elite running backs in the game. So when you take a look at what Lamar has around him. And then from the wide receiver position, when his main target, Mark Andrews, as I mentioned before, underrated, but far from being one of the, uh, far from being part of a, a dynamic duo from the pass catching, receiving tight end uh, skill sets of those of uh, the Baltimore Ravens and those that they play against. And what you might consider, uh, you're speaking about the Ravens and those skill positions, and you put their wide receivers and you put their tight ends up against uh, some of the quarterbacks who are doing work right now. You can see that Lamar, from that standpoint, is at a is at a disadvantage if you're going to be comparing skill sets at the wide receiver, tight end, and even running back position to someone to other quarterbacks who are playing great, like a Tom Brady, like a Dak Prescott, like a Justin Herbert, like a Kyler Murray. I mean, Lamar Jackson doesn't have uh, th- those type of weapons. The, 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 Lamar Jackson doesn't have a DeAndre Hopkins. Lamar Jackson doesn't have a uh, Chris Godwin. Mike 
um, Lamar Jackson doesn't have a Rob Gronkowski. Um, he doesn't have uh, those type of weapons. He doesn't have a C.D. Lamb. He doesn't have a Mike Williams. He doesn't have a, a Keenan Allen to throw the football to. So when you take a look at that situation, you take a look at what he does both from a staying in the pocket and being able to beat you with his arm. I mentioned before the 37 for 43 over 400 yards passing and then the 67 yards rushing to account for over 500 yards in the Monday night football game this past weekend or this past uh, Monday night against the Indianapolis Colts then coming back and showing and doing what he did being part of the team effort for the Ravens against the Chargers he's he has so much responsibility speaking of Lamar Jackson on the offensive side of the ball once again because of a lack of weapons and because of his uh, unbelievable athletic athletic gifts and you see right now the intelligence factor of how to play the old-fashioned the stereotype quarterback you see him involving as far as being a pocket passer Lamar Jackson has to be right up there in terms of speaking about what's going on, what's happening in the MVP race, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Now, what he's done the last, speaking of Lamar Jackson, what he's done the last five games, all wins against Kansas City at Detroit, at Denver, Indian, and the LA Chargers. When you take a look in 167 pass attempts, he's completing 66% of his passes. That would be... Let me see here. You divide 165 into 11, and then you move over to 6, and then you multiply that to 0.66 times the 167. So, so we're taking a look at 112 completions out of his 167 pass attempts for over 1,500 yards, including, as I mentioned before, one 400-plus game against Indianapolis, and then a 300-plus game with eight touchdowns and three interceptions. Uh, he's saved the bacon so far for the Ravens. And now we're, we're, we're speaking about the Ravens now being one of the elite teams in the AFC so far through six games. And the fact that Lamar, as I mentioned before, not relying so much on his legs. If you take a look, um, the, the you know, he's, he's been tempered, shall we say, as far as the rushing attack is concerned. He's only reached double figures twice against, oh no, he's only rushed double figures twice. Indy and Kansas City, and he's only gained 100 yards in only one of those games against the uh, Kansas City football team where he ran 16 times for 107 yards and two rushing touchdowns. So again, this is not the old Lamar Jackson. I think as far as six games into the season, Jackson's playing the quarterback position better than he had when he won the MVP. So far, so far, so far, so far. But you see the maturation of him being a complete quarterback. And if you've listened to my thoughts and opinions about Lamar Jackson on other podcasts or on other podcasts that I've done, I've, I've always said, you know, we, we, the, the best of Lamar is probably going to be in terms of him being that all-around super-duper Michael Vick, Randall Cunningham type of a quarterback, Steve Young type of quarterback, where they're a dual-threat quarterback, the new the new age of what a dual quarterback is all about. I mean, we went from Bobby Douglas with the Chicago Bears, who was nothing but a runner, and we, you know, we, we went ahead and then went to Randall Cunningham, who, you know, revolutionized the quarterback position when he was by far and away the the best athlete 
on the uh, football field whenever he played and his athleticism and his uh, his movements and uh, how he you know was able to not only run for close to a thousand yards but also be able to throw a 90-yard bomb the Freddie Mitchell and those guys and be able to uh, operate in a system designed just for him to take advantage of his skill set of his athletic ability and then after he retired after flaming out in Philadelphia to come back for the year that he had uh, taking the place of Brad Johnson when he got injured in 1998 with the Minnesota Vikings with Denny Green at the head coach and Brian Billick at the offensive coordinator and had the renaissance for one year that he had where his athletic skills were quite diminished, but he still had the developmental uh he had, he had developed he had developed an uh, an opportunity to be that pocket quarterback, and he had the season that he had with the Vikings going fifteen and one, and Randy Moss and Chris Carter and and uh, and uh, Isaac Reed, I think it's Ike Reed, Isaac Reed, or something like that. Robert Smith. That team was flipping loaded, but you know what made that team go was the pocket passing presence of Randall Cunningham. I see possibly. The same type of adventure in terms of Lamar Jackson, you know, developing into that type of quarterback where, look, man, for the next four to five years, Lamar is going to be just maybe one of the most, if not the most dangerous threat, offensive threat in the league because he's going to continue to develop as a pocket passer and his athleticism is still going to be there. So we're looking at Lamar maybe till about the age of 28 or 29, barring some type of injury, where you're going to have to account for him in his athleticism big time. Now, when he starts getting into his 30s, when he starts slowing down a little bit, when the game progresses, when a new generation of super freak athletes come and, um, you know, and and um, start to play him a little bit more, he's going to have to adjust. By that time, I'm going to go under the, the assumption that he'll be able to, to stay in the pocket, use his athleticism when need be, because it won't be the same as it was when he was playing at his current uh, age right now. But um, you know, I, I think that's the I think that's the progression in terms of quarterback play for Lamar Jackson. So yes, Lamar won the MVP when basically I, I wouldn't want. I, I'm not going to say that he was winging it as a as a quarterback, but you know, from a pure passing standpoint and everything, there were some limitations on what he can do now with his athleticism still at peak ratio and the fact now that he's learning the true essence of what a pocket quarterback should be what NFL quarterback should be you tie all that into you know as athleticism again through six games this season he's on a pace to be a much better quarterback than he was when he won the MVP and what does that mean in the MVP race when you're going up against quarterbacks like Kyler Murray, Tom Brady, Matthew Stafford, Josh Allen, Dak Prescott, and Justin Herbert, and those type of fellows. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So just uh, speaking about the MVP race, and look, you know, there's some other players that uh, might be considered as we move along as far as non-quarterbacks are concerned, but you really think they're going to be giving the MVP to a defensive player? I mean, what, Alan Page won that in 1971? Did Reggie White ever win one? Did Lawrence Taylor? I know Lawrence Taylor and Reggie White and those guys won Defensive Player of the Year, but with, you know, the, the legendary players like Reggie White, like uh, Aaron Donald, like um, Lawrence Taylor and those guys, did they ever win an MVP for the entire league? I don't know. I'm going to go on the guesstimation and say no. So this is mainly a 
quarterback, running back, wide receiver type of award when we're speaking about the MVP. And right now I can't find any type of a running back who would, uh, you know, be considered. And I can't find a wide receiver, maybe Devonta Adams, but you know, Aaron Rodgers, they'll give the award to Aaron Rodgers if uh, Devonta Adams has a quote-unquote MVP type of season through stats and statistics. They'll uh, assume that Aaron Rodgers is the guy throwing him the football, so that's going to be the guy who's going to be in stronger consideration to receive that MVP award. So, you know, through six games this season, if we're going to be speaking about it, if we're going to be deducing who are the leaders of the MVP race, then we're going to have to be speaking about Kyler and Tom and Matt Stafford and J.A. and Dak and Lamar and uh, J.H. So uh, there you go. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host. Ah, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just taking a look here. I'm taking a look and taking a look at some of my old notes in terms of the leading MVP candidates. Um, Because I like to track this stuff. Because as I mentioned before, this stuff is so fluid. I like to remind you sometimes about, yeah, remember when everybody was going, you know, nutso and gonzo and, and, uh, you know, head over heels about this guy and that guy. And it's going to be his MVP to lose. Or this team is going to be their division to lose. It's going to be their chances of making the Super Bowl to lose. And before you know it, by, you know, in week three and four, we're saying all this stuff. And by week eight or nine, we're like, huh, who, what, huh, what, when, we said that, where, now, where? After three weeks, it was Matthew Stafford. Remember that? Matthew Stafford was named Week 3 NFC Offensive Player of the Week after going 27 of 38 for 343 yards, four touchdowns, Rams beating the defending champions, Tampa Tom Buccaneers, 34-24 as I mentioned before, Stafford had thrown four touchdown passes in the game, the Rams were then vaulted at the number one team in the NFL because they were undefeated at 3-0, his nine touchdowns to one interception ratio with the best through thirteen uh, through uh, his uh, thirteen year career through the first three games and as I mentioned before the Rams were you know the bee's knees and all of that hoopla lasted about oh I don't know one flipping week about one hundred and sixty eight hours before Kyler Murray took control of the award and since week four three weeks in a row now Murray has been the leader of the, for the MVP race he certainly didn't do anything to uh, jeopardize his standing uh, in the victory against Cleveland especially with Chris. Cliff Kingsbury not being there, the head coach, because he missed the game because of COVID. But, you know, still is Kyler Murray. He's still the man through the first last uh, three games that the uh, Cardinals had played against the Rams, the 49ers, and Cleveland. He's combined to complete 71% of his 93 pass attempts, averaging 245 yards, seven touchdowns, no interceptions. And, oh, by the way, the Arizona Cardinals. Yes, the Arizona Cardinals are the team, the only team that hasn't lost a game so you know as of right now Lamar's doing some great things he put up some eye-popping numbers but as I mentioned before since week four and heading out heading now to week seven Kyler Murray has still is still the uh, guy for leading in the MVP race Wendell's World and Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us speaking about these Baltimore Ravens everybody now is up there talking about the Ravens are you know contenders they're contenders they're contenders you, you realize that Baltimore yeah they're five and one but you realize they could easily be three and three and at the very worst two and four you know that right there are some things some questions for Jackson and the Ravens moving forward like are the Ravens and 
Lamar true contenders for elite status in the AFC, which ties directly to the performance of Jackson. Now, yes, they're going to need their defense to play well. They're going to need their defense continue to be at the level that they were at against the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. But um, the weaknesses of the Ravens still make them vulnerable, even at 5-1. And it's going to be up to Lamar due to the fact that, you know, the court, the running back position has been decimated by injuries. J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards suffered season-ending injuries before the season already started. As I mentioned before, they've been bringing old, beat-up, used-up running backs off the street. I mean, we're speaking about the threesome of Latavius Murray and Devonta Freeman and Le'Veon Bell. That's going to be the three that you're going to be you're going to be dealing with. Those, those, those are three that are going to be um, dancing with you, and hopefully you get to the dance in terms of winning that Super Bowl. That's the threesome that's going to be uh, the main part of your running back trio. That's going to be good enough to uh, win your Super Bowl. It's going to be up to Lamar. You take a look at the wide receiver position. You really think that they have the duo? You really think they have the uh, depth at the wide receiver position to uh, go ahead and get things done? It's going to be up to Lamar. So the Ravens are going to be continuing on this trajectory upwards is going to be based solely, not based solely, but based mainly on Lamar Jackson. How much longer can he keep up with his play? You speak about the weaknesses of the Ravens outside of Jackson. Baltimore still lacking consistent offensive weapons at the running back and wide receiver positions. Um, Against the Chargers, fantastic. Latavius Murray and Freeman and... uh, yeah, mainly Latavius Murray and Freeman saw the majority of the action playing 45 offensive snaps, so that's great. But still, that's gonna say that's a below average running back trio that we're speaking about. The offensive line for Baltimore is still not complete because of injuries against Los Angeles. They played without Ronnie Staley, the offensive tackle. Alejandro Villanueva, the free agency pickup from Pittsburgh, left the game with a knee injury. Harbaugh said that you know we don't know exactly how serious this is going to be, but they had to go with Andre Smith. You remember fat boy Andre Smith who ballooned once he was drafted out of uh, Alabama, the number six pick, I believe, by the Cincinnati Bengals. Remember who almost ate his way out of the league? He was activated from the practice squad. You're going to put all your faith and trust in him, especially when we're dealing with a guy like Lamar Jackson. So, yeah, other concerns that I have? Look, man, as I mentioned before, the Ravens are 5-1. and one. You know, again, three and three, two and four, right? You you know they could easily be that record. If Lamar didn't go Superman and Clayus Campbell didn't block a field goal attempt and Indy missed a very makeable field goal attempt at the end of regulation, Indy should have won that football game. They snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. If the referees didn't blow a delay of game penalty, which gave Baltimore the opportunity to make a 66-yard field goal, Against Detroit, that was very fortuitous. That was very fortunate for the Ravens. You might even say lucky that they got the opportunity to go ahead and win that game. And then a fumble by Clyde Edwards-Hilaire gave the Ravens the the win against KC when they were driving to um, at least tie up the game in that situation. So, hey, man, you know, you take a look at those three. Now, yes, you know, if, you know, if I was six feet nine and, you know, had, you know, super bad athleticism, I'd be, you know, dunking basketballs and banging beautiful women and making boatloads of money. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, woulda. You are what your record is. Okay, but, you know, sometimes that type of stuff in terms of those fortuitous opportunities that uh, you took advantage of um, during the th- during the five games that you won and you talk about 
three of those games being the pendulum could swing one way or the other, the pendulum isn't going to continue to swing that way for the entire season. Sometimes karma has a way of balancing things out. So yeah, as I mentioned before, five and one, but as I mentioned before, the ref, if they lost, if they would have lost to Detroit, if they would have lost to Indy, what type of conversation would we be having about a, the Ravens being true AFC contending champions, B, the MVP uh, consideration of Lamar Jackson. Where would those discussions be if, despite the fact that Baltimore beating up on the Chargers, what would it be again if they had lost to uh, Detroit and Indy and even Kansas City? A much different conversation. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And for the Los Angeles Chargers, not going to read anything into this. Bad day at the office, man, in all phases of the game. Did nothing on offense, couldn't score in his first five possessions, held under 16 points for only the second time since drafting Herbert before last season. Defense couldn't stop anybody. They came into the game near the bottom of the league and run defense. Now I, now I know why, but uh, they're still one of the, teams capable of making a serious run because of the play of the quarterback, because of their offense, because of their dynamicism on that side of the ball. Is dynamicism even the word? I don't give a fuck. It is now because I just said it. But uh, I still think, again, bad day at the office. Every team is going to have them. Every team is going to have them and go through them. I expect the Chargers to uh, bounce back. They're playing now in a division, the AFC West, which they should be formidable, which they should be one of the heavy favorites to uh, go ahead and win. And once you make the playoffs, if you make the playoffs, it's a whole new season. And what's and what happened in week six on a um, Sunday afternoon in Baltimore, Maryland, really won't make that much of a difference come playoff time if the Chargers are fortunate enough to make the playoffs. If they're playing at a level to which uh, they're in the playoffs, then this Week six contest against the Baltimore Ravens surely should not count. So, you know, how you went. Bad day at the office for the Los Angeles Chargers. Great day at the office for the Baltimore Ravens. A lot of smoke and mirrors through that five game winning streak. But the bottom line, the Ravens, the Ravens are five and one. And a lot of that, most of that, a good portion of that success in this stretch of the season has to go to the new MVP considerate Lamar. Jackson. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Recording this on a 
Tuesday afternoon, trying to get this in before the start of the NBA basketball game. So, uh, yeah, if I'm sounding a little bit rushed, I apologize, but uh, there's a good reason for that. Not too... Uh, you know, with me, and hopefully that you've kind of picked this up when I'm speaking about the NFL, when I'm speaking about um, college football on my uh, podcast, that, uh, you know, it's a long, long season. So I don't try to go ahead the first, I don't know, part of the seasons in any season and any sport that's being played and go ahead and start trying to, you know, deduce and start trying to, you know, make these opinions and thought processes about what's going to be happening down the road. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a journey with me in terms of speaking about what's happening in these uh, sporting leagues. So, you know, after two games, three games, five games in the NFL, I'm not ready yet to sit there and say, this team is playoff worthy. This team is not playoff worthy. This team is in trouble. This team needs to fire its coach. This player is the best player in the league. This player is a bum. This player needs to be benched. I'm not, I'm not doing any of that stuff just yet in uh, college football and in the NFL. So for me, when I speak about the NBA, you know, the first two weeks or so, are just going to be almost like a, 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 re, a preview of what's going to be happening. Yes, I'll be basing those previews off the games that are being played, of course, of course. But, uh, you know, before I start talking about the Lakers are going to win the championship, they're not going to win the championship. Before I start speaking about, oh, yeah, without question, the um, Brooklyn Nets are going to be able to survive without Kyrie Irving. Before I start making proclamations and opinions set in stone, like, oh, yeah, the Milwaukee Bucks are true uh, contenders for the NBA championship to repeat, and the Philadelphia 76ers, they're definitely going to move on with the Ben Simmons and all this other stuff. And now I'm hearing that Ben Simmons got kicked out of practice and he's not going to be playing uh, for the uh, 76ers for the opening game. Next segment, I'll get into all that. But, you know, with my NBA talk, the loves of my life, it's just going to be a situation where it's going to be a long slog for me to finally sit there and say like, okay, this team right here, bing, bang, boom, this team is going to be doing this for sure. Luka definitely was going to be winning the MVP. KD is definitely all the way back to where he's the uh, top of the uh, food chain in terms of the best players and the NBA. Oh yeah, LeBron James, uh, you know, he's definitely going to need some more help from AD and what are we going to do about what uh, Westbrook in terms of his fit with the team and how's that working? The Lakers are doing this, the Lakers are doing that, the Chicago Bulls with their new acquisitions are doing this and they're doing that. It's going to take me a while before I go ahead and start making some real concrete opinions and thought processes about the long-term um, evaluation and expectations of any of these NBA teams. But all of that talk is for the next segment. Right now, I want to get back here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast with yours truly. I want to get back to some of the week four storylines of interest. The Chicago Bears can still call Aaron Rodgers their daddies. They can still call Aaron Rodgers their bitches. 5-1, and one, the Green Bay Packers beat the 3-3 uh, three and three Chicago Bears 24-14 for the 20th time in 23 games, counting the playoffs and improved to 22-5 and five with A-Rod Aaron Rodgers as the starter against Chicago. Please explain to me how this is a rival. Please explain to me how everybody in NFL land, everybody in sports fan land is supposed to get all geeked up and uh, hyped up to watch the Green Bay Packers play the Chicago Bears. I really don't give a flying fuck about Vince Lombardi, and I don't really give a flying fuck about George Hallis, and I really don't give a damn about uh, Sid Luckman, and I don't give a damn about Bronco, Bronco Nagurski, and I don't give a damn about Willie Wood and Ray Nitschke and Bart Starr and Jim Taylor and Paul Horning. I mean, all those things are nice, but man, we're, we're talking about not re even really a rivalry. When 
in the history of the game, maybe outside of the 1930s when the league just started up, when in the hell was the Packers and Chicago Bears a real rivalry? Yeah, I know the history. Hey, the only reason why the Packers are still in existence is because of uh, George Hallis footing the bill, so to speak, in terms of keeping them afloat when the league first started. And, of course, the proximity between Green Bay, Wisconsin, and Chicago, Illinois. Okay, I get all that. But from a on-the-field a prospect for on the field this is a rivalry where is it don't you have to be competitive somewhere in the history of sports of your sports for it to become a rivalry when they used to speak about oh yeah the Celtics and Lakers when Bird and Magic were playing the finals and they would speak about oh yeah the rivalry is renewed what rivalry are we talking about Jerry West and Elgin Baylor they never beat Bill Russell the Lakers and Celtics would play in the finals a few times and Bill Russell would always win. What are you talking about? In between beating the Lakers during Russell's run of eight straight championships, they beat the Philadelphia Warriors, they beat the St. Louis uh, uh, St. Louis uh, Hawks at that time. So where is this like year-to-year rival between the Lakers and the Celtics during the 1960s was stoked all of this, oh my goodness gracious, when Magic and Burton met, oh my, this is awesome because now we have the renewed rivalry going the Lakers and Celtics in the 1960s was never a rivalry just like in the 80s when the Lakers winning three times did they win three times they beat the Celtics they beat the Celtics Magic won five so he he beat the 76ers twice he beat the Pistons once he beat the okay so in the um, rivalry so-called rivalry between the Celtics and the Lakers between Bird and Magic I mean the Lakers won that two championships to one and really if it wasn't for magic choking a couple of games and bird doing his thing in uh, 1984 or 1983 the 1983-1984 season the lakers would have won three of the uh all three matchups between the celtics so i don't understand these rivalries that we talk about but you know you go back in lore and you go back in history and you speak about oh yeah the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers. Woohoo! What a rivalry. Whatever. I mean, if you want to call winning 20 out of the last 23 a rival, if you want to say that Aaron Rodgers rivaled the Chicago Bears, he's 22 and 5. I mean, I would hate to see what kind of a adjective you would give the Packers against a team that, you know, they're actually, where the other team's actually competitive against them. But in the game against Chicago on Sunday, A-Rod won 17 of 23, 195 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. Ran for a TD also, and then said, I own you, bitches. I own you. I still own you. The woman was giving him the uh, double finger. So, yeah, of course, if, if, if a female is going to be that rude and that crude, then, yeah, why not? I wonder what she was saying. Because, I don't know, I'm not trying to paint a broad brush over everybody, but, you know, black players, if they would score a touchdown in some places, and some fans would sit up there and start throwing ethnic slurs and all that kind of nonsense and you know, so, you know, I would I would take the football and fire it and try to hit him right between the eyes of somebody some, that did some shit or was doing that type of shit. But, uh, yeah, I wonder what the woman was saying. I mean, here's Aaron Rodgers beating the Bears once again, laughing at them, having a great game. What exactly can be said other than giving a finger gesture, an obscene gesture? What exactly is the situation where, what can be said for Aaron Rodgers to say, you know, I still own you. I still own you. Did the woman call him an anti-gay slur or did the woman call him something else or he's a homosexual or some nonsense like that? Well, what exactly did this? His State Farm commercial sucked. Uh, you know, you're still, you're not going to get the Rogers rate. So ha ha ha. My rate for State Farm is better than yours. So kiss my, kiss my ass. Was that it? Well, whatever it was, Rogers was like, you know what? I still own you. And again, how can you uh, argue with 22 and five against the Packers? 
and uh, at Lambeau Field under Aaron Rodgers at the quarterback against the Bears. He's 11 and 2. He's completing 65% of his 393 passes for 2,800 yards, 32 touchdowns, five interceptions, a 109 passer rating. I own you. I fucking own you. And I guess you could say for Green Bay, now winning their fifth in a row, we speak about the Ravens. And uh, I speak about the Ravens, the Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, what does this being win against the, San, the uh, Los Angeles Chargers? And now they're one of the teams in the AFC that should be considered title contenders or at least conference championship contenders. And what are, the, what are we talking about with the uh, Green Bay Packers? They won five in a row. They've had just as many hiccups and just as many, you know, overcoming roadblocks and shaky performances than the, uh, just as many as the Baltimore Ravens. What are we saying now about the Packers? Are we saying because they're in a different conference that includes the Tampa Tom Buccaneers and a couple of other better teams that because of that, maybe the, we need to temper our enthusiasm about saying the Packers are one of the elite squads or one of the main uh, teams in the NFC that could win the championship and then go on and winning the Super Bowl. If you take a look at the AFC and you take a look at the competition for the Ravens and you see right now how down the Kansas City f- uh, football team is right now, that maybe you can sit there and say, and especially down with Buffalo losing the other night to uh, Tennessee, Tennessee looking stronger, that uh, you know possibly if you take a look at teams and you take a look at the competition, that the Ravens have a better pathway, have a better chance of reaching the Super Bowl than the Green Bay Packers as of right now. So we're going to go with the thoughts and feelings about the Ravens being the better team or the elite team, or we're going to speak more glowingly about the Ravens right now and the performance of, uh, excuse me, the performance of Lamar Jackson and, you know, the fact that now he's being considered uh, an MVP candidate slowly, you know, quietly. uh, Aaron Rodgers really hasn't gotten that type of, uh, Uh, speak just yet as I mentioned before I think he's been solid more than spectacular and if you're coming off the season that uh, A-Rod had last season then you got to be a little bit more than solid to uh, go ahead and start speaking about him in the MVP race as of four five six games so far this season we'll see what happens as the season continues and Rodgers play stays at the level that it's staying in right now and we'll see what happens with other quarterback MVP candidates and even even other MVP candidates, how their performance ebbs and flows as the season goes along. But uh, yeah, man, I think Sunday against the Bears for the Green Bay Packers, it was, uh, what do you want to say here? I guess you could say it was a uh, team professional football win. Nothing came out of there that made you, you know, stand on your head. There was nothing good or bad that, you know, made you want to jump up and dance on the ceiling like Lionel Richie or run out and dance in the streets like Martha and the Vandellas going out there doing the funky chicken and the uh, James Brown and moonwalking up and down the streets. So uh, it was a professional win all the way. Yeah, Devontae Adams, four passes, caught 89 yards, including a 41-yard pass that set up uh, Rogers TD scramble and the I own you chant. Aaron Jones, 76 yards in total. Um, I think it was 76 yards rushing, caught four passes for 134 yards, balanced offense, ran the ball 31 times for 154 yards, passed it 23 times, which is always great. Might not do much for trying to uh, improve the MVP chances of Rodgers because he's not putting up those glowing numbers, but a win's, in a, a, better win's a win. And if you can establish that kind of balance, then uh, you know you know what we're speaking about here. So all around, all around, it was just a 
win. It was just a performance in a long season where, hey, you know what? It's, it's one of those, you know what, I'll see you on Tuesday. Is that what, what, if the game's over on Sunday, so what, the players don't report till Tuesday. So I think after six games into the season, I think it was the performance where it was like, hey, you know what, so I'll see you guys on Wednesday. You know, we'll give you the day off. Defense for Green Bay held Chicago to 277 total yards on eight drives in 57 plays. They sucked. They uh, sucked and sacked Jason Fields, Justin Fields, also four times and limited him to 137 net passing yards on 27 pass attempts. Just a uh, good, solid win by the Green Bay Packers. They they establish a stranglehold on the NFC North. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Kansas City used to be champions over the Washington. Never were champions in the last, I don't know, 40 flipping years? <sighs> Sorry. Um, 31-13 for Kansas City? I don't know, man. Very uneven performance. Did it give, I, I don't know. What, what do you make of this? Uh, what, what, everything's cool now? Everything's fantastic? A uh, little bit of concern? Uh, we don't need to you know, come off the ledge? I mean, I don't know. It was a very uneven performance. Didn't give any indication of where this team is going. I don't know if they righted the ship, or I don't know if this is just something where, you know, it was another performance where you're going to focus more on the first half, or you're going to focus more on the second half. I don't know. If you're a glass half empty guy, you're going to be focusing on the first half where they were sloppy, two turnovers, two, uh, two uh, excuse me, two turnovers, including just another like Jameis Winston, Brett Favre, Patrick Mahomes type of interception that just like what, <laughs> what, what were you thinking? Where were you going? Trailed Washington thirteen to ten at the half, so you walked into the. Uh, you walked into your kitchen, getting yourself uh, something to drink, something to eat, going down the street, getting yourself some food during halftime, flipping, flipping around to see what other games are on. Maybe, you know, saw your man or saw your woman looking good. So, you know, during the uh, halftime break, you want to go in there and get a quickie with them. I don't know. I mean, but, uh, you know, during that time, you were probably thinking to yourself, damn, man, what the hell's going on with the uh, Kansas City football team, man? Again, another situation where, I mean, am I going to be speaking about Maybe they're done. Maybe the Super Bowl hangover. Maybe the, you know, new talent is not meshing. Patrick Mahomes falling off the cliff or coming back down to earth. Or maybe he's not the quarterback that we thought he was going to be, a.k.a. run the league for the next 10 years and put up numbers that will that would consider him to be the greatest quarterback of all time. And maybe this spoke and this speak about the Kansas City football team having a dynasty and, you know, after the uh, win against Buffalo in the AFC championship. And we were all crowning Patrick Mahomes. Is he already going to be better than Tom Brady and the Kansas city football team? How many championships can they win? And where are they going to fit with the all time great uh, dynasties in the NFL and sports? When, when, when Tampa Bay sacked all of those notions and all of those thoughts, did it also kind of end the premise that, Kansas City is going to run the league. Are we now going to be seeing Kansas City come back to the rest of the pack? That was your thinking, right? After the first half, I mean, they didn't look good against, uh, excuse me, they didn't look good against Buffalo. They didn't look good against uh, the Chargers. They didn't look good against Baltimore, a.k.a. they weren't dominating. They had to have Patrick Mahomes save their ass at the beginning uh, the beginning, the, the beginning of the season, the first game against Cleveland, and now we see what Cleveland's been doing. So maybe that victory is not as impressive as we thought it was. I mean, yeah, they beat the Philadelphia Eagles. In the words of Derek Coleman, big whoop de damn do. Now look at what they're doing here against on the road against another team that we should be killing. 
the Washington Snyder skins and we're down 13 to 10. This is some bullshit. This is some nonsense. I can't believe it. In the first half, at the end of the first half, come on, man. Don't tell me you weren't thinking that or don't tell me you weren't thinking that there were a lot of Kansas City football fans out there that were thinking that. Whether they were in Kansas City, whether they were in St. Louis, whether they were in Arkansas, whether they were in Indiana, whether they were all across the across the globe, whether they were, you know, hanging out in Germany, whether they were, you know, in Australia, whether in Saudi Arabia. Come on, man. You cannot tell me that was a thought process of some of those football fans who adore and cheer Kansas City. Even back during the Len Dawson days and the Hank Stram days, matriculating the ball down the field is not what was the uh, plan or was not happening with the Kansas City football team. Then, in the second half, lo and behold, all right, coming out, outscored Washington 21 to nothing. Kansas City converted on eight straight third downs. The uh, eighth Conversion coming on Mahomes' 24-yard touchdown pass to DeMarcus Robinson. <sighs> that put the game away on ice. Okay. All right. Well, you know, maybe, shit, maybe, you know, maybe they had a team meeting and Reed or Biennemi or Spagnola or, you know, um, Mahomes or somebody, or Kelsey, somebody, for, you know, Clark threw a chair or busted a chalkboard or did something and was yelling and screaming and said, this is bullshit, this has got to end, this has got to stop. I don't know what happened, but goodness gracious, maybe this was the turning point. If you're a glass half full guy, maybe you look at what happened in the second half of this game against Washington, who had a pretty good defensive performance for the Washington Snyder skins, for the Washington Chase Young skins, for the Washington Washington defensive line skins for the Washington defending NFC least skins. This was a better performance, at least from the defensive standpoint. Now, offensively, they still stink. And offensively, they still have a bad quarterback in there. And maybe uh, it's time for maybe Kyle Allen, the third string quarterback who broke his ankle starting for Washington last year. And they said in practice, he's been looking better and he's been improving as far as physically is concerned. Maybe it's time for, um, Allen to go ahead and try playing the starting quarterback role for Washington as Ryan Fitzpatrick is on the men for his return. Maybe maybe that's a situation, but, you know, okay, they weren't playing the Kansas City defense. They weren't playing the creme de la creme, if I could use that cliche when describing the Washington football team on offense, but hey, you know what? When you're speaking about Kansas City and their defense, as poorly as they played, you'll take it. You'll take it. You'll take it. You'll take it. They allowed one touchdown off a turnover, was able to hold Washington to field goals instead of touchdowns on two occasions in the game's first 30 minutes. We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. Any news is good news. Any improvement is good is good improvement. I'll take it. I'm not going to poo-poo, and I'm not going to say, well, big fucking deal, man. They should have just, you know, destroyed the uh, uh, the uh, Washington football team. I mean, scoring 10 points, 13 points against them, that's a fucking joke. We still stink. Hey, you know what? 13 points, you'll take it, you'll take it. And again, Patrick Mahomes righted the ship in the second half. So I don't know what you take from this game. I, I don't I don't know exactly where we're going. For the game, he was, uh, speaking of Mahomes, he was unevenly good. Maybe you want to say that. The numbers look fine. 32 of 47, 397, two touchdowns. But that interception that he threw in the first half just keeps replaying in your brain and is like, how many of those does he have left? I mean, how many of those type of... Uh, look, not all of Mahomes' eight interceptions over the last five games. He's never had more than 12 in one season. He's had eight in five the past five games. Not all of them can be blamed on him. But the throws that he made 
that turned into interceptions, interceptions that can be uh, blamed on him. They were so egregious and they were so ugly and they were just so mind bendingly like, what the hell was that? That it kind of, I don't know, that that stays with you. That supersedes some of the uh, other plays that he had, that he's had. And with Mahomes, I guess this like kind of surprising, or I guess you can kind of look at it in a different way because we've never seen Mahomes like this. We we've never seen when Mahomes in the interceptions that he's thrown, where he just makes you scratch your head and you say, "What are you doing?" For the first. I don't know, three years of his career, when he throws those passes, most of the time it works. That's the thing. I mean, maybe we can go back and find some film with some of the egregious, ridiculous interceptions that he's thrown over the past uh, five games. The one he threw against the Chargers, the one he threw against Washington, the one he threw against Buffalo. Some of the horrible ones. Maybe we can look back and find that same type of play and we see Mahomes making some play in the... Making a path to Kelsey or Sammy Watkins or Clyde Edwards Alaire or um, Kelsey or or Hill, and we just sit there and go, "Oh my goodness, that was fucking unbelievable! I can't believe that shit." You know, one of the passes I believe, oh, what was it against Cleveland? I forgot where it was where he tried to throw a, a no look pass and he threw it slightly behind him and it was intercepted. I mean, how many of those pl- plays has he made? Mahomes has made in the past. Uh, three seasons and now instead of turning those into oh my goodness that's unbelievable this guy's arm talent is otherworldly type of uh reactions now all of a sudden we're going in the complete 180 the other end of the spectrum by saying what in the fuck with that what in the hell are you doing so i don't know i don't know hill and kelsey combined to catch 17 passes for 175 yards and the wait for josh gordon is uh still out there huh so I don't know. We'll we'll go ahead and take a look. Like I said, uneven performance. What does that mean? I don't know. Time will tell whether we should read into it was more of Kansas City, you know, first half, Kansas City second half in terms of what we're going to be determining how good they're going to be this season. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, breaking down some things that I saw in the NFL this past weekend. Dallas continues to roll, won their fifth straight game on the road against New England in overtime, 35-29. When I was speaking about, man, all these elite teams in the NFC, and I mentioned just one, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, should have mentioned the Los Angeles Rams. Of course, should have mentioned the Arizona Cardinals. As far as through six games, long-term, don't know what's going to be happening with Arizona. Long-term, don't know what's going to be happening with L.A., even though talent-wise, they're uh, set up to uh, be strong contenders for the remaining uh, games of the season. But Dallas is also one of those where, hey, man, you know, um, legit conference championship contenders. Snapped a six-game losing streak to Billy Bill Belichick. Beat New England for the first time since 1996. Dallas against a Bill Belichick defense who was supposed to be the mainstay of the squad for New England. Dallas had 567 total yards of offense and Dak Prescott passed for 445 yards in the wind. Not blow in in the wind, but 45 yards in the W-I-N. Prescott led the tying drive with a huge 24-yard completion to C.D. Lamb on third and 25 at the end of regulation. And in overtime, he hit Lamb on a 35-yard score for the win and the push and the fuck you push by the uh, New England defender as C.D. Lamb was taunting and waving to him 
as he was going into the end zone for the game-winning score. And how about this? The defense also played pretty well. Yeah, okay, we could talk about, you know, the uh, long pass that uh, Mac Jones made at the end of the uh, game to give New England the lead, but for the totality of the game, the defense played well enough. If you're going to be having an offense that's going to be putting up 576 total yards and having Dak Prescott throw for 444 yards against a Bill Belichick defense, which is supposed to be stout, then you don't need to have the uh, Cowboys defense resemble what they were in the 1992-93 season under defensive coordinator uh, Ken Norton. No, Ken Norton played for him at that time. I'm sorry. Well, being, um, you know, being that guy. Dave, what was it? Dave Camp? Not Dave Campo. Oh, my goodness gracious. The man with the mustache who uh, coached Miami and then he coached a couple. Dave Wanstead, yes. Dave Wanstead was the uh, defensive coordinator during those Jimmy Johnson-led Super Bowl championship runs. Well, the Cowboys defense of 2021 they don't have to be as great they don't have to be a dominant they don't have to be uh as uh, efficient as those squads but hey they forced two turnovers including a pick six by Trayvon Diggs in the fourth quarter they played great also had a block punt in the win as well it was uh over overall a really good performance by the uh by the Dallas Cowboys consider them again one of the uh, leaders consider Dak Prescott moving up the charts I guess you could say as of right now he's already clinched I don't know it's going to take Dak Prescott maybe two or three or four games of really bad quarterback play for at least not giving him the uh, most improved player award or the comeback player of the award whatever that award is the way Prescott has been playing the first uh, six games of the season I mean he's so far ahead of the competition in that award that it's like jeezy wheezy but um for the MVP continues to arise and, you know, the storyline, the narrative that comes with uh, something glossy, something something sexy, when you want to be speaking about why someone should win an MVP, well, is there another story that's any better, more compelling than Dak Prescott? The fact that he had his ankle or his leg broke and he's going to be coming back less than a year later and playing like this, if he can get Dallas to... 14 and 3 or 15 and 2 or 13 and 4 and and he's putting up numbers like this I mean I know Kyler Murray is the man but from the narrative standpoint how are you going to put the MVP anywhere else other than into the hands of Dak Prescott so the Cowboys continue to play well the return of the Zeke continues he played well the offensive line played well it was just an overall really good performance by the Dallas Cowboys and we speak about Mike McCarthy's decision making and uh, saying that might be the only thing that's holding the Cowboys back. And you can make a legitimate um, argument about that. Some of the decisions that he made, trying to kick the field goal and other things with some time remaining. But if Bill Belichick wasn't Bill Belichick, how much would we be screaming and complaining? Let's say, because this is almost like the second game in three games that's been played, that Belichick made some decisions that were just like, huh? Really? I mean, I'll go with you because you're Bill Belichick and you know better than I do, but wow, interesting. The field goal attempt that he had against the uh, Buccaneers a couple of weeks ago and and then allowing Dallas to uh, go ahead and get in the field goal range and allowing Dallas to convert on the third and 25? I, let, let, let's say, for instance, if instead of Bill Belichick in New England on Sunday against the Cowboys, let's say if that was... Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. Let's say if that was Dan Campbell in Detroit. How much would we be killing those guys if we took out Belichick and New England and inserted Urban Meyer in Jacksonville and put them in the same same situations as 
Belichick had at the end of the game against Tampa Bay and then this past weekend against Dallas. Hell, let's let's flip the script and let's say it was Mike McCarthy who was doing those things. How much would he be getting killed for some of the decisions that Bill Belichick made? Now, of course, Bill Belichick has won six Super Bowls, so when you win six Super Bowls, are you really going to sit there and start talking about, you know, hey, you should have done this, you should have done that, you blew the game, what the hell are you doing, this, that, and the other? Are you really going to go that route? I don't think so, but just some interesting moves by uh, Belichick at the end of the game, and I guess he's up there trying to say, hey, I tried to do what's right, and uh, go screw yourself. You, you trying to coach now? Oh, you're doing a podcast, all of a sudden you're going to be a coach? You, you're, trying, you're trying to be a coach, Wendell? Oh, you're not? Oh, okay, good. I thought not. Sit down and shut the fuck up. Wendell's world is boy. Can you imagine Bill, Bella, Bill Belichick talking to me like that? You talking to me like that, coach? You talking to me like that? Yeah, I am. Sit down and shut the fuck up when you're speaking about trying to uh, talk about my coaching skills. All right, coach. All right, you don't need to use the profanity, but at least you didn't throw any racial slurs at me. You're going to get, you're going to dig up Aaron Hernandez and do the dirty work for me. If I continue this badgering and continue this, um, beat down on you verbally, Wendell's world in sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening, what's going on in the NFL. Hey, let's give it up for the Jacksonville Jaguars getting their first win of the season over Miami. And Miami is quickly becoming to a point where of, um, what no return, for any of the preseason expectations, all this stuff about, you know, we're playoff contenders and this, that, and the other, down the drain. Not even not even the return of the Tua could save the Miami Dolphins from their fifth straight loss. Got off to a hot start, though. Tua, Mr. Tunga Vailoa, 8 for 10, 76 yards on Miami's opening drive, which ended in a TD. But, uh, you know, once again, the offense stinks. Miami rushed for 77 yards on a Jaguar team that gave up more than 120 per game. I don't know what to make about I mean, Jacksonville's Jacksonville, you know, hip, hip, hooray, you know, great, wonderful. But uh, for Miami, I mean, Jacksonville had no expectations. Trevor Lawrence uh, played well. His continuation of his development continues in the right direction. And for the most part, until people wise up and get rid of Urban Meyer and put in, in I don't know, a professional football coaching staff to uh, help Trevor Lawrence. The only, the only thing that the Jacksonville Jaguar fans should be interested in is making sure that Trevor Lawrence does not get killed uh, his rookie season and they see some type of progression. So when hopefully this year is over and they get rid of Urban Meyer and bring in, I don't know, maybe Eric Bieniemy, something like that, they can uh, go ahead and continue to build on the positivity and some of the experiences that Trevor Lawrence had his first season and continue his development that way. So as long as Urban Meyer doesn't ruin Trevor Lawrence, Jacksonville Jaguars fans, you shouldn't care if the team goes 1-16. and But on the Miami Dolphins side of things, with every loss, man, the move to do something drastic, uh, a.k.a. get Deshaun Watson, get stronger. I was watching just a tad of that game, and the shots they had of uh, Stephen Ross, I only saw it once, but uh, the shot they showed of Stephen Ross as he was sitting there with a look on his face where it's just like, I'm about to fire one of these motherfuckers. I just don't know which one. Um, he was not happy, and he was not happy at all. And he was been he's been one of the proponents of saying, "Hey, man, you know what? Telling his uh, football people, we need to seriously consider going ahead and uh, making a move for Deshaun Watson, seeing what it's going to take." So, you know, I understand that Watson is all tangled up with his legalities and all of the suffer stuff because he was acting like a perv 
with some of the uh, massage therapists, but um, he's still an awesome football player if, if his head is right and if his body's right and if his mentals are right and if his physicals are right. So, yeah, man, in a situation like this with Miami, because of the move to get Jalen Waddle moving up to the uh, number six pick in this uh, past draft, I mean, this is not a situation where they're going to have a lot of draft capital to rebuild anyway. So if you're Miami, I don't know what to do. Do you pull the plug? I mean, if this is a situation where now instead of trying to make the playoffs, you're just going to uh, see if you have a uh, serviceable football, uh, serviceable uh, quarterback that you can move forward to. I mean, maybe to uh, improve to the point where it's like, okay, maybe we can build something around this guy. Or maybe, you know, for the rest of the season, we can, you know, kind of see if this is going to be the guy. If this is not going to be the guy, we'll move on from there. Which one is going to be fitting the culture in terms of the other players? Which ones are going to give up? Which ones are going to uh, go ahead and do some things? Which coordinators do I need to make a move on? Which, you know, all, all of those things. So, you know, from going to, hey, from starting from, we're going to try to make the playoffs and this, that, the other two, which players and which coaches are going to still be here after this season? That might be the uh, new realism for the Miami Dolphins that they continue to have their season go down the drain. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Before I get out of here, did you see this nonsense between, uh, or did you see this nonsense with uh, Dan Campbell at the end of the uh, game against the uh, Cincinnati Bengals when he was uh, asked about uh, his starting quarterback, um, Jared Goff? Dan Campbell laying the smackdown on the starting quarterback. Let's listen to uh, what Campbell said, speaking about golf and the uh, post-game loss to Cincinnati. Yeah, look, I, I think I will say this. I still don't feel like um, I don't feel like we can accurately judge him one way or another. Um, I don't feel that way yet. Now, I will say this. Um, I feel like he needs to step up more than he has. And I think he I think he needs to help us, you know, just like everybody else. And uh, I think he, he's got he's going to need to put a little bit of weight on his shoulders here. And it's time to step up, make some throws and do some things. And uh, but he needs help. He needs help, you know. And look, I told him out there, he knows this, but some of that stuff, we're getting these holding calls. Well, it's because he's drifting back in the pocket 10 yards deep. That's not fair to those guys either. And if you hang on to the ball, so it's like I told you, this is a collective effort now. Everything goes hand in hand. But I want to see him step up. I do. I do. Because I think he can do it. All right. So uh, what he said from the audio was, well, should I say it? Should I say it? Yeah, fuck it. I want to say it. Um, <laughs> that's what, it was like he wanted to be careful of what he said when a question was brought up by saying it's not fair to judge him too harshly in the short moment. There was a short moment of silence, as I mentioned. It lasted, lasted like five seconds where he was like, well, should I? Is this, should, is this a good idea? I really want to, but should I? Should I? Ah, fuck it, it's him. I'm going to do it anyway. So he went out and he just blasted up, man. Said he needs golf to step up more and more than he has and he needs to help us just like everybody else I, I love the way he said yeah he needs golf we, you know he, he need we need him to step up and do more and do these things just like oh just like everybody else coach Campbell didn't put a name on everybody else who's everybody else coach I mean because it's like everybody needs to improve you could have said that 
Everybody on offense, everybody on defense, everybody on the special teams, everybody on the coaching staff, we all need to step up. The team game, everybody needs to step up. But no, it was like, Jared Goff needs to step up. Oh, uh, along with everybody else, <laughs> everybody else needs to step up. But in particular, but in, you know, the, the, the main guy who needs to be stepping up is our quarterback. So, wow, man, he went ahead and he just put it out on the street for him, man. He continued with his critic of uh, golf by talking his criticism by saying it was time for him to put on some, put some of the weight on his shoulders and make some throws and do some things and all this. Coach, have you been watching Los Angeles Rams football for the previous two seasons? Because if you had, you wouldn't be saying those things when it comes to uh, Jared Goff. Jared Goff, if you're going to be asking Jared Goff to put more weight on his shoulders and try to make more plays and try to do some more things, man, you're going to end up 1-16, 2-15. Did you see Jared Goff, even when the Rams were making it to the Super Bowl, winning conference championships? Jared Goff is not the guy that you want to uh, put more weight on his shoulders, add more responsibilities. That's not Jared Goff. If you had Aaron Rodgers... If you had Tom Brady, if you had Dak Prescott, if you had Russell Wilson, if you had Kyler Murray, if you had one of them, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, if you had one of them cornerbacks, sure, I can understand you saying something like that. But you don't say that. You say that to a Matthew Stafford. You don't say that to a Jared Goff. You don't say, and expect to win football games. Unless that defense all of a sudden becomes, I don't know, one of the greatest defenses of all time. And guess what? The Detroit Lions personnel on defense doesn't resemble anything that could be the greatest defense of all time. So, yikes, putting more expectations. How about that, Detroit Lions fans? Dan Campbell is asking his quarterback to uh, do more. He needs to step up and do more. Now, sure, I can understand him saying he needs to step up and do more without asking him to do too much. But then when you're asking Jared Goff to put more weight on his shoulders and, and perform better, this, that, the other, what does that entail? And what is going to be the, what is going to be the uh, positive outcome of that? They've been close in a couple of games. And the Lions have been right there. I mean, they haven't been, being, they haven't been blown out on a consistent basis. So, yeah, I, I, I get it. Maybe a play here, maybe a drive there, maybe a decision here, maybe a play call there, maybe a pass miss there, maybe a mistake there. Instead of 0-6, we could be looking at the Lions being maybe 2-4, and 3-3, and possibly, maybe. But, man, don't, don't be sitting there talking about we need Jared Goff to step up, put some more weight on his shoulders, and start doing some more things. If you're going to be asking Jared Goff to do that, Whew, man, it's going to be a long season. It's already starting to look like a long season in Detroit. You have uh, just signed for an even longer season. If you're expecting Jared Goff, it may be, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into what Dan Campbell is saying in terms of what I'm going to be saying next. But if you're looking for Jared Goff to have the same responsibilities and impact on winning for your team like Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or Kyler Murray or Prescott or any of these guys. If you're trying to put that type of responsibility on Jared Goff, coach, you're in for a long, long season. And again, that's just me speculating. He didn't say that, but uh, it will be interesting to clarify in terms of he needs to do more. What more does he need to do? Very interesting. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening in the NFL Week 6, the 
Cleveland Browns are struggling. Got beat by the surprising Arizona Cardinals today, 37-14, or Sunday. And it wasn't even close. Baker Mayfield struggled through a recurring shoulder injury. He's sitting there talking about, hey, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. But the man had the torn labrum. That's got to hurt. On his non-throwing shoulder, so that's something. That's, that's something. He's worn a harness to keep the shoulder from popping out of the socket. But against the Cardinals on Sunday, while getting sacked five times, the shoulder popped out again, leaving Mayfield prone on the field for several minutes. You see what happens, man, when you live in a stadium? When you and his, I don't know if it's his girlfriend or his, or his wife, but man, way to go, Baker Mayfield. That's, that's more impressive than winning a Heisman. But, um, you know, that's what happens when you live in a stadium. You need to go out and you need to get yourself some real real estate. You need to go out and get yourself a mansion or you need to go out and get yourself a beautiful condo or something like that. But I think living in that stadium, and, you know, doing all of those other things, having yard sales and taking your offensive linemen's pads and trying to sell them and, you know, passing out nachos for uh, trick-or-treaters on this upcoming Halloween and, you know, gossiping about, uh, you know, um, uh, one of your neighbor's kids is not playing tennis or being pulled out of tennis. I think all of those things are really taking away from the effectiveness of what Baker Mayfield can do. So if he could just move out of that stadium and him and his beautiful wife, girlfriend, whatever she is, get themselves a humble abode or a mansion or something like that, I think maybe it will help him play a little bit better. Huh? What's that? Oh, he doesn't live there? That's a commercial. So he doesn't live in... Oh... Oh, so he doesn't live in the Heisman house either. That's another commercial. Gotcha. So I can't blame his poor play on Barry Sanders or his new roommate, Kyler Murray, either. Oh, I'm sorry. Hmm. Does he still play for Hulu? Because they have live sports. Not No. Strike one, strike two, strike three, huh? So not only am I wrong, all of them jokes weren't funny. So maybe I should just shut the fuck up and get back to speaking about football. Okay, I'm sorry. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. But speaking about the Browns, man, I mean, they've uh, they've had some other significant injuries. I mean, it's just not Mayfield, but when you lose your running back, Nick Chubbs didn't play on Sunday. Kareem Hunt's going to miss some time because of injury. Um, fullback Andy Janowicz, wide receivers Odell Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry has also missed some action. I mean, offensive line is down to three tackles. Jarek Willis, Andy Conklin, and Chris Hubbard have all missed games because of injury. You're not going to be able to win football games. Now you got to turn around on a short week and play Thursday night against Denver. And then you have games against Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. Three and three for the Browns in a division where the Steelers are now starting to put together a couple of games. Uh, the Ravens are starting to distance themselves, a two-game lead over uh, those guys with their 5-1 record. I'm, I'm not saying that the season is over for the Cleveland Browns, but, man, this is going to be an important important three-game three game stretch for those guys because 3-6, and six, and with the Ravens playing like they're playing, a.k.a. winning, um, it's going to be hard to catch those guys if – Cleveland's going to be, after three games, if Cleveland's going to be sitting there, you know, what, four and five or three and six or something like that. And meanwhile, the Ravens are going to be seven and two. So, you know, it's going to be important. What do you do with Mayfield? Do you sit him? A game against Denver, the way Denver has been playing recently. I don't know who the backup quarterback is for um, Cleveland, but if you're not going to be without Chubb or Hunt, I don't know, man. And you're, if, if your offensive line is a shaky because of injury, you're going to put a quarterback in there who has a torn labrum after, what, only four days off on a short week? You're going to do that to the man? 
It's a marathon, not a sprint. Now, I'm not a medical guy. I haven't taken a look at Mayfield's arm. I'm not qualified to give any type of, uh, I'm not uh, qualified to give any type of diagnosis on what should happen. So whatever the doctors say, I'm quite sure head coach Kevin Stefanski is going to go ahead and run with it. So if he plays, I guess the uh, medical staff gave it the okay. So we'll see what happens on that one. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Real quickly, Denver and Carolina fading quickly. Denver losing at home to Las Vegas, 34-24. Yikes. Wasn't the defense supposed to be the calling card for Vic Fangio? Is his uh, seat now starting to get a little bit warm? Well, when you fall down 24-7, Denver, in the third quarter, and you have to have Teddy Bridgewater throw the ball 49 times, I don't care if he did complete 35 of them for 334 yards and three touchdowns. Guess what? He also threw three interceptions. Now, one was during, you know, desperation time, but still, you don't, you don't want to have Teddy Bridgewater throwing the ball 49 times, but when you have Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon combining to run only 21 times, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. So after 3-0, and the defense has um, fallen. The offense has uh, got down got down to the medium, and we see the Denver Broncos now talked about the Cleveland Browns having an important game this upcoming Thursday. What about the Denver Broncos just as important and then the Carolina Panthers losing their third game in a row losing to Minnesota in overtime 34 to 28 the regression of Sam Darnold continues who was that fucking idiot that was sitting there talking about the New York Sam Darnold is gone because of Joe Brady and a coaching staff and an offensive mind that could put uh, uh, Darnold in the more advantageous positions to succeed and you know sorry about that uh, Jet fans it looks like the way Sam Zach Wilson is playing that you got the short end of the stick. Who was that idiot? Hey, who was that idiot that said that? It was me? Okay, um, I guess the Vikings on Sunday, uh, Darnold was 17 of 41, 207 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Eey. During the three-game streak, he's uh, 64 for 117, 685 Four touchdowns, six interceptions. Not good, not good, not good. Don't have the defense either that can back them up. So, yikes, I have gone on and on and on about what happened in week six of the NFL. A lot of stuff to talk about, so I got through it. And uh, now it's time for me to talk about my uh, my wife. Time for me to talk about my wifey as she comes back from her vacation on Tuesday, in a couple of hours, the NBA, a.k.a. my Halle Berry, my Monica Bellucci, my Ola Ray, Michael Jackson Thriller video fans, check that out. My Sade, Sade Adu, my Cosby Show, Lisa Bonet, back in 1985. They return to start the season on Tuesday. I'm excited. I'm pumped. Can't wait to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it after I get down the boogie a little bit. Train and the reason for 
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Shalom, namaste, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa from all over the globe. Special dedication for those who are listening to the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. Special dedication to those listening in Australia, those who are listening in Canada. Special dedication for those who are listening in Germany. Special dedication for those who are listening in Brazil. Special dedication for those who are listening in Mexico. Special dedication for those who are listening in America. Special dedication. Thank you so doggone much. The NBA is going to be starting We'll be starting. I'm recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm watching the Dodgers and the. Uh, <laughs> I'm recording this while watching the Dodgers and the um, Atlanta Braves. Still, still two all, hanging in there. But Walker Bueller can't seem to find the strike zone. Be pretty nice if the umpire actually had a consistent strike zone to call balls and strikes. But that's baseball for you. But I'm recording this as I'm watching the Dodgers and the um, Atlanta Braves. Wouldn't mind seeing the Dodgers win, but I'm not going to be. Don't worry about it. If something happens. I'm not going to be speaking about the NBA and then all of a sudden jump up and say, holy shit, that was straight fucking three. What the hell did the matter with you, up? Anyway, back to what I was saying about the Lakers. No, I'm not going to be doing any of that. My attention solely, 100%, <clears throat> is on uh, this podcast right here. Look at my voice is kind of uh, weak. I guess that's what happens when you're speaking to, well, 14 and 15-year-olds for, I don't know, four class periods, 80 minutes per, per class. But, um, yeah, so getting back to what I was speaking about, the NBA... So glad for it to be back opening day. The games, Brooklyn in Milwaukee, Golden State at the Los Angeles Lakers. As I mentioned before, I'm not going to get into too many predictions and who's going to be doing what and who's going to be doing how and who's going to be winning MVPs and who's going to surprise and all that kind of stuff. It's a long season, man. It's 82 games. Now for the first time in a little bit, the NBA is back on to its regular season because of COVID and throwing things out of whack and the start and then the delay and then going back to the bubble and then ending late and then coming back early and continuing to play and having the season late and then having the Olympics start or the Olympic training start during the NBA finals and all this kind of stuff. It seems like some of the uh, players, a lot of the players now have uh, gotten their sea legs together and gotten their um, body time zones back together or whatever you want to call it and everything's going to be back to normal. So maybe some of the fluky injuries or maybe some of the things flukiness that happened during the past uh, couple of seasons, a season and a half of the NBA will not be uh, prevalent in this season. But, you know, when you're speaking about 82 games, when you're speaking about load management, when you're speaking about players not playing because of load management decisions from the organization, for the most part, it's kind of hard to be speaking about in April what a team's going to be doing, you know, whether it be a team that made wholesale changes, hopefully for the better for their fan base, like the Chicago Bulls. They brought in DeMar DeRozan, the offseason, or excuse me, the uh, in-season trade from last season, which brought in uh, which brought in Vukovic and stuff to uh, pair with Zach Levine. We don't know exactly the impact that Levine had, his experience playing with the Olympic team. We don't know how much is that going to translate, a.k.a. can he play a little bit better defense, can he be more of a playmaker, so... We don't know about that, the acquisitions and the free agency acquisitions that Chicago made, uh, uh, the ball, one of the ball boys going over to the uh, Bulls, not Lonzo, yeah, Lonzo Ball going over to uh, Chicago, 
to improve their defense. You have a bunch of guys out there, especially with the acquisitions that they made, will help their offense. You're speaking about DeMar DeRozan and Vucevic and the presence already of Zach Levine. Those guys can definitely put the ball in the hoop. It's a matter of, can any of those guys guard anybody? Lonzo would never have been a guy who's going to be a volume scorer, but from the point guard position, he can be a guy that can distribute and he can be a guy that can defend. So any of those things that can be prevalent, that can be something of a use, a consistent usage on the Chicago Bulls this season is going to be warranted. So, you know, the Chicago Bulls, I'll be speaking about them, as I mentioned before, for the next, I don't know, four or five or even six podcasts. It's just going to be mainly me breaking down, speaking about what's happening in the NBA, again, from, you know, a very minuscule amount of of games that they're going to be playing when you're going to be trying to then translate that into an entire season and trying to project what an entire season is going to be. You have writers, you have betters, you have those who set the lines, you have those who do this for a living that can, you know, sit there in preseason and tell you, you know, who's going to be the number one seed in the West, who's going to be out of the playoffs in the East, who's going to be the bottom feeders and all those type of things. I, I, I don't do that. I really don't pay too much. I, pay attention of course to the acquisitions i pay attention of course free agency as such but you know i I don't go in there i don't pay any mind at all to the preseason games none just like in nfl football so what the rookies do in preseason what they do in summer league or what some free agents does in summer league and all that that kind of stuff that means nothing to me means absolutely nothing when my interested uh during the summer to see what guys like kate cunningham and um and uh, the couple of kids from Houston, uh, were they, was I interested in watching them play a little bit? Yeah, because they're going to be getting major minutes and they're going to be getting, um, you know, really impactful roles. Jalen Green and those guys, you know, those guys, Evan Mobley, they're going to be getting, you know, um, really impactful responsibilities for their team. So I'm going to uh, see from the get-go how they look, but I'm not going to be then taking that and saying, oh, well, because of what he did in summer league, Jalen Green is going to average over 20 points a game, or, you know, Kate Cunningham is going to be a guy that's going to right off the box give you 15.7 rebounds and eight assists per game for a Piston team that should improve by six, seven games and put them in the position to make a, a playoff run in the weak Eastern Conference. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing all that. I can't do all that. Not going to do all that. Too much other things going around. When everybody makes these prognostications, they all make it on the basis of everybody's going to play 82 games. Or at the very least, at the very least there's going to be very few injuries or any drama or anything that's going to be baked into the cake of what's going to be produced in terms of a season. I don't do that. I take into account that there's going to be players that are going to be injured. There's going to be significant players that are going to miss significant amounts of time. I hate for me to think that way, and I hate for that to happen, but reality is the truth. So, you know, those are the things that, you know, I really can't delve into in terms of when I'm speaking about who's going to win the MVP. Well, you know, if you take a look at last season, LeBron James was the leader around Christmas for the MVP. Then in February, Solomon Hill steps on his ankle and he's done. The Lakers moving into Black History Month were the best team. Well, I'm sorry. I forgot my fan base. Um, Moving into February, the Lakers were the best uh, team in the NBA. And, you know, everybody was talking about how great they were. But guess what? Anthony Davis gets injured. LeBron James gets injured, and the Lakers are playing in the playing game. Um, Brooklyn Nets 
We're supposed to be a team that was supposed to set the world on fire. Well, you know, KD only plays 30-something games. James Harden gets injured, and he starts the season not even on the Brooklyn Nets. Kyrie Irving, um, you know, he was up and down, and when the playoffs started, he was great until he got injured and couldn't finish off the playoffs. So he had a hobbled James Harden, you know, you know, at 30 25%. In the uh, second round against the Milwaukee Bucks, you had so, so the, the season. It's 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 just too early for me to be sitting there and talk about yeah this yeah that. So you know some interesting storylines though we can get into some interesting storylines. Of course, it's always going to be dealing with drama, right? I mean, why do you pull over or why do you slow down when you see an accident on the road, right? Why do you go ahead and you do a little straightening of the neck when you see a little drama going by your way? You might not intercede, you might not interject, but you're going to be curious to see exactly what's going on. So we love drama. The world loves drama. And what better way to begin a season as far as drama is concerned with the drama queen king of them. I shouldn't say drama queen. I'm sorry. The drama king of them all, Kyrie Irving. The Nets moving forward. I spoke about this in my last podcast about, you know, Kyrie Irving is not going to be getting the vaccine, not because he's anti-vaccine, not because he's anti-government, not because he doesn't feel it'll work, not because of any of those things. He just feels that, you know, as a man, I have a choice. I have a right to make a decision on what's best for me and what's best for me is not to take the vaccine. He really didn't give any specifics why he feels that it's best for him not to take the vaccine. I think it was a roundabout way of saying, well, you know what, I'm not interested in people telling me what to do. So if someone's going to tell me to take the vaccine, I'm just going to go ahead and do the op- uh, opposite and not take the vaccine. Sounds very petulant, very childish, but... uh very hypocritical also. I mean, people are telling you to do things every single day, Kyrie. I mean, when you get on a road and you go through a school zone, are you driving 75 miles per hour? If you do something that's against the law and someone pulls you over and you get called out on the carpet for it, is your excuse going to be, well, I'm a man and no one tells me what to do? There's laws and there's rules that we all have to abide by. Now, getting the vaccine, hey, that's not a rule. That's not a law in terms of... Uh, whether you're going to get it or not, but there are consequences by your actions. So if you're not going to get the vaccine, these are the things that are going to happen. You are not going to be playing basketball. He decided to say, you know what? I don't know if it's just ignorant bliss. I don't know if it's something that we all don't know about that sooner or later that uh, things will get better and the rules and mandates of New York City will be lifted and I'll be able to rejoin my team without being vaccinated and everything will be fine. And if you take a look at the Brooklyn Nets last year and everybody talks about the most important thing in terms of a team coming together and winning championships is actually playing with each other. Well, the Brooklyn Nets were a James Harden injury and a Kevin Durant foot away from proving that logic wrong. Now, even if they would have beaten the Milwaukee Bucks, they would have had to get past the Atlanta Hawks and then get past the Phoenix Suns. So while they would have been favorites, there is no guarantee that they would have won a championship. But what I'm saying is the fact that, uh, you know, you don't, you don't need for a guy to be playing 65, 70, 75 games together to quote unquote develop chemistry. Kyrie and KD played together in the Olympics and gained some type of knowledge of how to play with each other. Of course, it's not the same as playing 82 games or playing years and years on the same team together, but there was a familiarity with those guys and how they play and what they like and how they play with each other, which gave them the idea at the beginning to go ahead when KD was with Golden State and Kyrie was floundering in Boston to get together and join this team, not with the New York Knicks, but with the Brooklyn Nets. So last last season, and even if you take a look at game two, I think it was. 
I remember there was a game, I think it was against Milwaukee, and I think it was game two in the second round where Irving and James Harden and KD played, and, and they were magnificent. They blew Milwaukee off the court. It wasn't close. And the speculation was speaking about, the, you know, the, 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 the scuttlebutt and the talk and the talking heads and the opinionators and the columnists and those who follow the sport at that time. I think it was game two. Yeah. At that time where Milwaukee just got blown out, the situation was, well, you know, this is it. No one's going to be able to beat Brooklyn if they play like this. And this is going to be a sweep. And if this is going to be a sweep, Lord have mercy, say goodbye to Mike Budenholzer at the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks and another disappointing season for Milwaukee. And what does that mean for the team? Are they going to have to blow it up? Are they going to do something drastic? All of these things um, came to a head when they were after that loss in game two. But Irving injured himself. Milwaukee won a rock fight uh, game three, got themselves back in the series and series and everything changed. I, 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 God damn it. I don't know. Whenever Kyrie got injured, the game before he got injured, I don't remember what it was. I don't, I know it wasn't against Boston. I don't know. I just remember that they played a game, the three of them in the playoffs where those guys looked fucking unbeatable. And it was just like, man, if they're going to play like this, screw it. We might as well just uh, give them the championship right now. But uh, you know, Kyrie got hurt and, Things went a kaput. So all I'm trying to say is that, you know, if, for instance, if something happens or, you know, Kyrie is Kyrie. So this could be a situation where I'm recording this on the 19th of October. By the 20th, Kyrie might just say, yeah, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get the vaccine. Or he could say, screw it. I'm just going to go ahead and retire. Or he could say, screw it. I'm just going to go ahead and play basketball in Japan or Korea or Australia. Or he could say, screw it, I'm going to see if I can get on a rocket ship and go to other planets and see what they're about and see if they have a basketball league that'll let me play. Or he'll just say, screw it, I'm going to uh, retire and become a Buddha. Or he could just say, screw it, I'm just going to uh, retire and uh, join up with Colin Kaepernick and see what I can do to make this world a better place. Or he could just say, screw it, I'm going to join Maya Moore and see what else I can do in terms of helping her in her quest to uh, free innocent people who are behind bars. With Kyrie Irving, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? What to predict with Kyrie Irving going from minute to minute more than the Doobie Brothers. So it's like all of these things come into play with uh, Kyrie. So if he does stay away, if he does not make the uh, decision to join the team, can the Brooklyn Nets still win an NBA championship with James Harden and Kevin Durant and pieces surrounding him to uh, win a, win a uh, championship? If the answer is yes, then maybe the answer then becomes, well, if you can win a championship with just KD and James Harden and, you know, Patty Mills, they re- they signed in free agency and LaMarcus Aldridge came back to maybe during the regular season and he can give you 10 to 12 minutes a game and they re-signed Blake Griffin and they re-signed Bruce Brown and, you know, they went out and made a couple of other moves. They acquired Paul Millsap through free agency, another guy who, you know, during the regular season can be part of a nine or 10-man rotation that, you know, can give some rest to uh, Griffin and give some rest to uh, KD and maybe he can, you know, fit in st- 10 to 12 minutes a game also. So, you know, with a closing lineup of James Harden, Kevin Durant, Patty Mills, Blake Griffin, and say, for instance, LaMarcus Aldridge, or maybe a, maybe a Claxton, or all um, oh, the big man who's a the skinny bl- the big man who I'm forgetting. But is that team good enough to win themselves a championship? And if the answer is yes, 
then the question does have to come up and say, should we try to trade Kyrie Irving? Do we have the backbone to try and trade Kyrie? Now, in a situation like this, do you go to Kevin Durant and, you know, kind of sort of bring up the conversation, maybe, possibly, and that maybe get his thoughts and feelings about that, if maybe just thinking, throwing it out there, running it up the flagpole and see who salutes type of uh, idea in terms of trading Kyrie Irving? If Kevin Durant says, I don't give a fuck, I'm trying to win a championship, do what you need to do uh, in terms of making this team better. I mean, you know, trading one of my good friends in the NBA is not, you know, it's not going to have me dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing in the ceiling on the ceiling like Lionel Richie, but, you know, I'll understand. If Kevin Durant gives you the okay about that, which which team owner, president of basketball operations, general manager, which one of those guys are going to have the guts, the spine, the constitution to go ahead and make that move? Huh? Someone like a franchise like a San Antonio or... You know, Yusai Jiri in Toronto, I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll do anything. That man is fearless. Both L.A. teams, the Clippers and the Lakers. I mean, Steve Ballmer, I mean, that man has enough, money, has enough money to buy anybody. So, I mean, you know, when you're worth a couple of billion times 10, uh, you know, and it's Los Angeles and it's the Clippers and it's Los Angeles and it's Los Angeles, then, you know, there's Ty Lue, a guy that um, Kyrie has played for and he's familiar with... Uh, what he's all about. I mean, if you're the Clippers, why not inquire? If you're the Lakers, who, you know, established long ago that you go after stars, why not? LeBron and the uh, Irving relationship has happened before. I'm, I'm just running it up there. I understand that the Lakers, Westbrook and all that kind of stuff. I understand it. I'm, I'm just saying, would you maybe, I don't know. I mean, this is the Lakers that we're talking about. They collect talent. They collect big names. So who knows in a situation like this? But uh, would... Any of these teams have the stones. The most logical choice, of course, would be to trade with the Philadelphia 76ers. Ben Simmons, as I mentioned before, has been suspended because um, he's been acting the fool in practice or he acted the fool in practice was conduct detri detrimental to the team. So Doc Rivers, the Black America's head coach, told him to get the hell out of here. So he's not going to be playing in the opening game on uh, Wednesday. So, you know, you have a disgruntled player in Ben Simmons. You have a pain in the ass like Kyrie Irving. I mean, this is a situation where... You know, I'll trade you one headache for another if you're the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. It would be an ideal win. I mean, for a glass half full type of guy, it would be a it would be a win-win for both teams. For Philadelphia, having a focus mainly on basketball most of the time, Kyrie Irving on that team. Maybe Doc can get him to do that, I don't know, maybe 70, 75% of the time. I mean, this is a guy who's worked with quote unquote unique personality see Rajon Rondo. So, I mean, maybe Doc can, uh, you know, kind of keep Kyrie focused enough to where a tandem of Kyrie and Joel would be, what, the best backcourt, frontcourt tandem in the league? Kyrie did average, uh, what did he average in uh, last season? He shot 50% from the field, 40% from the three-point line, 92% on, uh, on his free throw. So you're looking at a 50-40-90 guy. Irving would actually be available to play every day for the Philadelphia 76ers. Why? Because there's no vaccine mandates in the city of Philadelphia, nor the state of Pennsylvania. And visiting players are not subject to the same rules in New York City. So he could go ahead and do that. Give the 76ers the um, spacing that they would need. Give MB uh, the second playmaker that he would need, as well as a score that he would need. So for Philadelphia, it would be great. For Philadelphia, it would be very advantageous for them to get uh, Kyrie Irving just based on 
basketball sense alone. And for Brooklyn to get an in-shape and focused and, you know, no longer my, are my feelings hurt Ben Simmons would greatly improve Brooklyn from just their standpoint of the Brooklyn's uh, Nets' biggest weakness is their defense. Well, with Ben Simmons on the floor, that automatically improves in that situation. And because you have such scores as James Harden and Kevin Durant, who can easily average 32 and 27 points between them for a season, you wouldn't have to have Ben Simmons out there, you know, trying to score in the fourth quarter or trying to create for himself in the fourth quarter. You wouldn't have to do all that kind of stuff. I mean, hell, for the most part in the fourth quarter, you wouldn't have to even have Ben Simmons handle the basketball because you have a playmaker in James Harden. You would just have to worry about Ben Simmons in terms of, look, man, just lock down your, uh, lock down your guy on defense, spell Kevin Durant when we need it. And, you know, Ben Simmons is still a guy who can give you 13 to 15 points per game. Yeah, well, I know the elastic image is him is him passing up a dunk to uh, pass out for uh, for a driving layup and got fouled against Atlanta in Game 7. Yes, I understand that's the elastic image, but this is a guy in Ben Simmons who is capable of scoring anywhere between 13, 15, 17 points. And as I mentioned before, when you have two scorers like KD and... James Harden, you don't need to be asking Ben Simmons. He would be much more comfortable in that regard to where it's like, look, man, just give us 15 a night. That's all. You know, give us 10 to 12 shots per game. You know, he'll average eight or nine assists per game. And again, a guy who will dramatically improve the defense of the Brooklyn Nets, which is their weakest point of uh, their team. Now, the only holdup in all of this is the fact that Philadelphia is not interested in trading for Kyrie Irving. Why? Because he, they're still hoping that either Damian Lillard or Bradley Beal is eventually going to hit the trade block. I don't, they haven't given any, any indication, but that's Philadelphia's, uh, you know, I have a dream that one day Kyrie Irving and Bradley Beal will be able to walk into the Philadelphia center and shake the hands of black kids and white kids, Jews and Gentile, Protestants and Catholics, people from all over the world. And as Bradley Beal walks into the walks into the court of the Philadelphia 76ers, wearing that home uniform, wearing that home Philadelphia 76ers jersey, or Damian Lillard walks onto the court and shakes the hand and daps up Joel Embiid and takes a look around and sees Doc Rivers on the sideline and takes a look around and he looks down and he sees that Philadelphia 76ers jersey on him. He can look around and in the words of the old Negro, spe- uh, old Negro spiritual, he'll look around knowing that Damian Lillard is not with the Portland Trailblazers and Bradley Beal is no longer with the Washington Wizards and he'll look up and they'll say, Free at last, free at last, thank God almighty, I am free at last. And then we can say, tap it up, tip it up, and let's get on to doing some things because relevancy will be upon them. So that's what Philadelphia's dream is, that playing for the Washington Wizards and losing, Bradley Beal will say, screw this. Damian Lillard, everything that he's given, he'll have a Kevin... uh, KD moment, Kevin, a Kevin Garnett moment and say, screw this and say, get me out of here. And Philadelphia will be ready to pounce. Now, that's the hope. I don't think Damian Lillard's going to be going anywhere. I don't think Bradley Beal is going to be going anywhere. I think at the very least, I think that uh, Damian Lillard is going to give the Portland Trail Blazers one more chance. He's going to give Chauncey Billups a chance. And I think that um, Bradley Beal is going to give the Washington Wizards another chance. Tommy Shepard, another chance, and new head coach, 
Wes Unsell Jr. one chance. So I don't think that uh, midway through the season that Bradley Bill all of a sudden is going to come to the organization and say, get me out of here, along with Damian Lillard. So far in their careers, that has not been their style. Maybe their representatives will do it, but um, those guys will not be doing it. So that's what Philadelphia is holding out for. I mean, if it came down between Bradley Beal and Kyrie Irving, I mean, I know all the baggage and I know all the nonsense and all the quirkiness and the uniqueness of a personality that uh, Kyrie Irving brings to the table that, yeah, you probably uh, would be better off going with a little more... Uh, the word I'm looking here for to describe Bradley Beal in comparison to Kyrie Irving. Not mature, but maybe you're more focused on just one thing, playing basketball. Maybe that would inquire you to say, you know what, I'm going to go with Bradley Beal. But if both guys are playing basketball and only care about playing basketball, in my opinion, there's no question about it that Kyrie Irving is the better basketball player. You could even make a strong argument that uh, a focused Kyrie Irving just wanting to play basketball is the better basketball player than Damian Lillard. Again, how much of a focus, I want to win, I'm going to do everything it takes, I want to be dedicated to basketball, Kyrie Irving, are we going to get? So that's the uh, that's the fly in the ointment, one of the flies in the ointment of that trade not going through. The Sixers also would have no guarantees that Irving would stick around with the franchise long term because you're taking a look at Irving who has two years and somewhere around $71 million left on his current contract and a player option for 2022-23, it's like, well, we're not going to, you know, you know Daryl Morey ain't going to be giving away Ben Simmons for nothing. He's not going to be giving away an asset like that for nothing. So if you're speaking about getting a guy who could play out the 21-22 campaign and then choose another team of free agency, it's like, well, we're not going to go James Harden. We're not going to be like Houston and, you know, James Harden ourselves. We're ready to win the championship right now. Again, if you're talking about a situation where Ben Simmons has no desire to play for the Philadelphia 76ers, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You got to trust the process. Another interesting th- trade that I saw between um, a situation where Ben Simmons would leave Philadelphia, Kyrie would be traded from Brooklyn, is a three-way trade with the uh, Miami Heat as participants. This is uh, what Grant, Grant Hughes, an NBA columnist, he in a recent article for Bleacher Report, he wrote about this, about a three-way trade between Brooklyn Miami and Philadelphia that Brooklyn would receive Ben Simmons and Victor Oladipo. Hmm, interesting. Philadelphia would receive Kyle Lowry, Cam Thomas, 2025 first round pick via Miami and a 2027 first round pick via Miami again. And Miami would receive Kyrie Irving, a 2023 second round pick via Philadelphia. Don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, that's, that was an interesting trade. So we'll monitor all of those things moving forward. But, uh, all good stuff, man. All good stuff. So Ben Simmons coming to camp out of shape. Obviously, he's not interested in playing because of his conduct detrimental to the team. So he's going to be something where it's like, look, man, if you're not going to trade me, then I'm going to make it really hard for you guys to move on because you can, you can, um, you know, you know, do all this stuff with Ben Simmons in terms of kicking him out of practice and he's not going to be playing and conduct detrimental to the team. You can do all these things. But basically, are, are you trying to win or not? Are you Is Philadelphia trying to win or not? If you're trying to win, you got to go ahead and just do the best that you can. Because how long are we going to wait for Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard to maybe get the uh, decision that they're going to be traded? And let's just say, for instance, that Beal and Lillard, Beal and or Lillard, 
come up to their organizations and say, you know what, I'm done, I'm out of here. It's not like all of a sudden Portland's going to call up Philadelphia and say, okay, let's make a move. Or Washington's going to call up Philadelphia, a team that's in their same division is going to call up or their same conference and say, okay, let's go ahead and make a move. There's going to be more to it than just that. I'm quite sure there's going to be other teams, the New York Knicks, the San Antonio Spurs, that are going to be also interested in maybe in a Damian Lillard, in a Bradley Beal that are going to be able to uh, go ahead and do some things. It's not like there's only one team that's going to be after the services of those guys. So even if Lillard and Beal do decide that they want to move somewhere else, it's not like Philadelphia is going to be the only suitor for their services. So I don't know. I don't know. For Philadelphia, you you got to do something. Because in the post-process era, the 76ers have made the second round of the postseason three out of the last four times. Two of those series losses have happened in Game 7 defeats. Upset Game 7 defeats. Ones that have left Philadelphia 76ers fans not very happy and, you know, wanting to get one of their quote-unquote players of the process out of here. So, moving forward, hey, look, they need to do something as far as what are they going to do to surround Joel Embiid? Do they have enough shooting, enough scoring to complement Joel Embiid? Tyrese Maxey... Maybe the team's best perimeter scorer, Seth Curry, is the team's best outside shooter. Danny Green has fallen off in terms of being a consistent three-point shooter and, and defensive player. So are those guys going to be good enough? How much can you rely on Joel Embiid being the most dominant presence in the game for more than half the season and then being available for the majority of the games? You're speaking about a guy in Embiid who for the past Five seasons has played in only 260 of the possible 391 games. So you're looking at MB just on rest management, load management alone. is not going to be giving you 80 games. Hell, he'll be lucky if they'll give you 70. If he can give you 65, that will be considered a miracle. If he can give you enough games to where he's going to be going into the playoffs, rip, roaring, ready to go, that'll be what the uh, 76ers, that could be a best case scenario for the 76ers. Last season, he played only 51 out of 72 possible games. And... You know, it was argued that those 21 games cost him the MVP because what was the difference between Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid in terms of who should win the MVP? Jokic played the majority of the games. Joel missed games. So availability is uh, something that goes into the deal. So that's the situation right there. Other storylines, can Milwaukee Bucks, can they repeat? Will they be a one-time NBA champion following the same... um, Deal as the 2006 Miami Heat, the 2008 Boston Celtics, the 2011 Dirk Nowitzki-led Dallas Mavericks, the 2006 Miami Heat were led by a young Dwayne Wade, an aging Shaquille O'Neal, the Georgetown um, Alonzo Boring, Gary Payton, Jason Williams, and the helps of and the help of the referee who put Dwayne Wade on the line to seem like 45 times a game after the uh, Heat went down two games against Avery Johnson and those Dallas Mavericks. So the 2006 Miami Heat, the 2008 Boston Celtics of KD, excuse me, KG, Rajon Rondo, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, the 2011 Dirk Nowitzki-led Dallas Mavericks, and then the 2019 Go For It, Sell Your Soul to Win a Championship Toronto Raptors with a rental player in in, uh, Kawhi Leonard. So is Milwaukee going to be doing those things? Will winning a championship liberate Giannis and Denikupo to even greater individual achievements? Are we speaking about a possible MVP run? I know he's already won it twice, so he's going to have to do something really off the charts to get that done, but he will be doing it now as a NBA champion, making them top contenders. You're speaking about Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, continuing to be the foundational pieces needed for the Bucks to compete. 
talented individual teams like Brooklyn and the Lakers. Yeah, they've loaded up on superstars, but is that chemistry between Middleton and Holiday and Giannis going through what they went through last season, Middleton and Giannis going through what they went through even before winning that championship, the experience of Middleton and Holiday playing in the Olympics, Holiday being one of the major reasons why the uh, why America was able to win that gold medal. How much did that boast the confidence of Holiday moving forward now from being a guy who was the best player not ever being on an NBA All-Star team to all of a sudden now being that perennial All-Star guy and maybe moving up in terms of importance, uh, maybe a top 20, top 25 player in the NBA this season, closer to 20 than 25. I mean, if that's going to be happening, are you really going to doubt the chances of the Milwaukee Bucks to repeat because everybody right now is speaking about the only reason why they made it out of the East is because of what happened with Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn is in a little bit of turmoil right now. And, you know, again, the situation where you still have KD, who's a couple of years removed from a torn Achilles. You have James Harden who missed some time because of injury. Now, same thing could happen to Giannis. Same thing could happen to Chris. Same thing could happen to a holiday. So, you know, I'm not saying that Milwaukee isn't immune when we're speaking about how well they can do from injury, but, uh, you know, if those guys remain relatively healthy or at least are ready for the playoffs, we have to give the Milwaukee Bucks strong consideration if things play out correctly. I don't know if they are, but, you know, that's going to be interesting. And, of course, can star power equate to substance in Lakerville? Going to be interested to see them play tonight against the uh, Golden State Warriors. L.A. completely overhauled its roster Acquired Russell Westbrook from my Washington Wizards, a massive five-team trade that uh, sent Contavious Coltwell Pope, Kyle Kuzma, Montrez Harold, and his 2021 first-round pick to the uh, Wiz to make room for Westbrook's salary of hello 44.2 million. Not so much in terms of when you think about the taxes and the cost of living in L.A., but it's still a nice uh, chunk of change. 44.2 million. The Lakers, because of that. In the acquisition of Westbrook and their salary, they had to say goodbye to KCP, who was their best perimeter shooter. And they had to say goodbye to uh, the GOAT, the Great White Hope, Alex Caruso, who went over and uh, is playing with the Chicago Bulls. But he was one of their better defenders and a good role player, knowing, you know, I mean, Alex Caruso was extremely dependable in terms of, hey, look, man, I'm here to service LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And when I say service LeBron James, I'm talking about making him look great on the basketball court and having me do all the dirty work. You filthy mind motherfuckers. So, yeah, so Alex Caruso was great in that role of not trying to be that guy who, you know, was trying to do more than he could. He understood what his role was, and he did that very effectively as a role player for the Los Angeles Lakers. He's now in um, Chicago. So I guess the hope is that Westbrook and the developmental uh, situation of Taylor Horton Tucker, THT, will be able to compensate for those losses. But I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. The Lakers this season, man, I tell you. Questions are going to be, who's going to be playing defense for this team, man? Because none of the Laker players that they've acquired and the players that they have on their team now are what we would say consistent defensive players, especially on the perimeter. Now, AD can still go ahead and do some things from the uh, front court position, but if he's going to be asked to uh, be that guy in terms of taking that torch from LeBron James somewhere in January or February and let it be his team, like all of the great superstars have done, whether we're speaking about Tim Duncan passing the torch to Manu Ginobili, whether it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar passing the torch to Magic Johnson, whether it was Dwayne Wade passing the torch to LeBron James, somewhere down the line, LeBron James is finally going to 
have to say, hey, look, for us to maximize our opportunities to win a championship, I'm still important, but AD, you're going to have to be the you're going to have to be the guy. This is going to be your team. So I'm wondering if this year is going to be the year, not on opening night, not in the first 15 or 20 or 25 games, but I don't know, maybe sometime around the all-star break or depending upon how the team is looking at that time, there's going to come a time that LeBron's just going to have to say, maybe it'll be when he's 45, I don't know. But there's going to come a time where LeBron's going to be like, look, man, I can't do this. The expectations of a LeBron James when I was 35 and 32 and 28 and 26, that's no longer possible for me. So, AD, we're going to win the championship. you got to be the man. If that happens this season, is AD going to be able to expend the same amount of energy on the defensive end if he's going to be asked to do more from an offensive standpoint? So, we're speaking about a team here that really doesn't have – and Frank Vogel is a great defensive coach. But you're looking at the clay that he had to work with not really not that great. You know, Westbrook can't guard anybody. Kendrick Nunn can't guard anybody. Wayne Ellington can't guard anybody. Malik Monk can't guard anybody. Taylor Horton Tucker really can't guard anybody. Carmelo Anthony can't guard anybody. Rajon Rondo, not the defender that he once was. He was never really the guy who was going to be consistently over the past seven or eight years kind of, you know, match you up and, uh, you know, shut you down. I mean, his steal rate is there, but his one-on-one defense no longer uh, it's no longer what it was. So who's going to be the defensive player for this team? I just ran you a bunch of players who's are, who are in the rotation. Dwight Howard from the front court, maybe, but Dwight Howard more is an agitator and guy who's going to, you know, in a short amount of time, give you three fouls, four fouls, five fouls. That's what his game is right now. He's not going to be asked to be a consistent defender and give you 24 to 32 minutes. That Dwight Howard, Howard is long gone. So DeAndre Jordan, possibly, but, you know, here's, here's a guy who uh, didn't get any time for the uh, Brooklyn Nets last year. So from a backcourt and frontcourt position, I don't know who's going to guard anybody on this team. Who's going to be the consistent shooter, outside shooter for the Lakers this season? Ellington might be the most consistent outside shooter, but how many minutes are you going to give this guy when he has his other weaknesses? I mean, how much can you trust him, especially Frank Vogel, who values defense, how much are you going to be able to play Wayne Ellington unless he's going to be like such an unbelievable outside shooter that, you know, you're going to have to leave him in there. And hopefully some other players will step up and mask some of the uh, weaknesses that he has on defense. Who's going to space the floor when when Westbrook is the primary ball handler and decision maker? Now Westbrook, I think, is going to be even better as the season rolls along, when he's going to be with the special, when he's going to be playing with the second team. I think that he'll do better when LeBron and AD are not on the floor. When he's going to be playing with someone like uh, like a Wayne Ellington, when he's going to be playing with someone like a Carmelo Anthony. At least guys can go out there and make a couple of shots. Taylor Horton Tucker, a couple of shots who could open up the avenues for Westbrook to uh, drive to and set up others. I mean, that's where when you space that floor, the best years that Westbrook had post-Oklahoma City was with the small ball play of Houston where you had four guys around him who could shoot three-pointers, which stretched the floor, which spaced the floor, which gave the uh, driving lane for Westbrook to do a thing. And uh, last season with Washington, when you had Davis Berton finally coming into shape and um, being more efficient from the outside, Rudy Hachimura, uh, Bradley Beal, of course, from a scoring option. Who on this team, as far as outside of AD from you know, mid-range and down low, who else on this team is going to provide Westbrook the driving lanes for him to do his thing? So, again, it ain't going to be LeBron. It ain't going to be AD, maybe from the center position. But if you're looking 
you know, at AD speaking about, well, you know, I'm going to be playing a little bit of center and a little bit of power forward. Oh, how much are, how much is little? I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Well, that's going to be the attitude, man. I mean, you know, what are we going to be looking at here? So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Who's going to be the uh, crunch time unit for the Lakers? You're going to have to have Westbrook. You're going to pay a man $44.2 million. So you better have him in the uh, finishing lineup. Or else Frank Vogel's going to be looking for another job or looking for another team to coach. So you're going to have Westbrook, Anthony Davis at the center, LeBron at the power point guard, I would believe. Who's going to be the other two guys to uh, complement that trio? What, the two best guys who are playing the best that game that day? Are you going to choose between Malik Monk, Wayne Ellington, Kendrick Dunn at the shooting guard position? Maybe you have Carmelo Anthony. Maybe you can't because he can't play the defense. But if he's going to be having a hot hand from that game and having a little bit of a, of a throwback moment, are you going to be able to play him um, at the end of the game with, with AD and LeBron and Westbrook? As I mentioned before, it's just going to be on a game-to-game basis. Like if Kendrick Nunn is hot, you're going to keep him in there. If Malik Monk is hot, you're going to keep him in there. So it's going to be a rotation of of uh, front court, back court players, two back court players to complement Westbrook, AD, and LeBron during crunch time in an important game. All of those things will be worked out, and all of those things are going to be worked out. Do they have a lot of time to do it? So you've got that. Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal staying with their team. Beal and Washington, my Wizards, man, I tell you. It was nice of them. You know, Tommy Shepard did a great job of getting rid of Westbrook and getting rid of John Wall. So there were two of the worst contracts in recent seasons in the NBA that the Wizards had and now they don't have. Have a little bit more flexibility. They traded for Cal Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, Contavious uh, uh, Caldwell-Pope. Lots of forwards on that team for my Wizards, though. You look at Kuzma, Rudy Hachimura. Denny Avia, the first-round draft pick from last season. Harold Davis Bertans coming back. Also have a new coach in Wes Unsell Jr. I mean, another situation where Tommy Shepard is just trying to build a squad that's going to be somewhat relevant, not really championship contender, just trying to appease Bradley Beal to say, hey, guess what? We're going to be able to make the playoffs. We ain't going to go anywhere. We're not going to be fixtures in terms of uh, being real rivals or really uh, – team a team that can uh play for a championship or anything like that but you know if bradley beal is content with being uh on a team that's going to be fighting for the play-in game and losing the first round of the playoffs every year well then tommy shepherd is building that kind of uh team in washington so there you go and damian lillard as i mentioned before would he ask for a trade if portland stumbles this season you remember that post-conference at the end of last season where he's speaking about damn we couldn't even go to game seven against a Denver Nugget team that was missing Jamal Murray and Will Barton. Or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, Murray and Will Barton. And we still couldn't beat these guys. And I was absolutely outstanding. What am I doing here? So, as I mentioned before, those guys after trades, yeah, okay, fine. Philadelphia, fine. But guess what? You're going to have to contend with maybe a Golden State, a Minnesota, New York Knicks, Toronto. And guess what? You take a look at Golden State, they're two young players that they that they drafted. You take a look at Minnesota, uh, some of the young capital that they have on their team. You take a look at the New York Knicks, who are the New York Knicks. You take a look at Toronto, we have to deal with Masai Ujiri. Hey, man, it's just not going to be a situation where it's like, yeah, you know, Portland and Washington are going to be beating each other up to see which one can trade for a Ben Simmons and give you guys either Damian Lillard or Bradley Beal. So the NBA season is going to be upon us. I cannot wait. It's going to be fantastic. 
Last segment, final segment of the program, Wendell's World in Sports. Last segment of the podcast, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us in the podcasting world of Wendell's World in Sports. This is going to be the shortest segment that I'm ever going to do. Time for me to go ahead and to uh, watch the end of this L.A. Dodgers, Atlanta Brave. Cody Bellinger just tied it up 5-5, so I'm just going to cut this a little bit short. Plus, I've been talking for over two hours, so I'm just going to go ahead and mention very quickly about college football. New top 10 is out. Number one, Georgia, after their impressive performance over Kentucky, remains number one. Don't see anybody beating them anytime soon until the championship game, the SEC championship game, especially after Florida losing to uh, LSU. Oh, I'll get to Ed Orchard run at another time. Him and LSU splitting departing, divorcing at the end of the season. Cincinnati coming in at number two. Oklahoma, number three. Caleb Williams, how about that? Number four, Alabama. That loss to Texas A&M already is, is meaningless at number four. Ohio State, good comeback after losing to Oregon early in the season. They're at number five. Number six, Michigan. Number seven, Penn State. Number eight, Oklahoma State. No chance. Number nine, Penn State. No chance. Number 10, Oregon, the lone Pac-10 squad who probably doesn't have a chance of getting into the playoffs unless something wacky happens. Despite the fact that they beat Ohio State at Ohio State, it means more, I guess, for those who are ranking to have Oregon struggle with California than beating Ohio State on the road earlier in the season. So upcoming games in a couple of weeks, you're going to be having Michigan play Michigan State. That's going to be interesting of those teams in the top 10 who like to say that they're Iowa fraudish in terms of being in the top 10. I think Michigan State and Oklahoma State are those two teams. Doesn't take anything away from Mel Tucker, what he's done with a Michigan State program that has no business being anywhere close. They shouldn't even be ranked number nine in their own conference, let alone in the country. So Mel Tucker had done an awesome job in Oklahoma State with Mike Gundy. You know he's going to be losing in the bedlam shootout to Oklahoma. So number two, Iowa drops to number 11 after losing to Purdue 24-7 at home last weekend. We knew from an offensive standpoint that Iowa was fraud. Kirk Ferenc said it would be pretty nice if you could actually get your offense into the 21st century. It'd be nice. This is a 1976 three yards in a cloud of dust and having a quarterback who isn't able to lead you to a championship. Times have changed, but uh, Kirk Ferentz has a great great gig. Every couple of years, he wins eight or nine games and uh, he gets contract extensions. I mean, that's the way that uh, Iowa rolls. Then uh, Kirk Ferentz knows that he'll be there forever because he has mastered the formula of you're never going to be able to compete on a consistent base with, with Ohio State, Penn State. And uh, Michigan, nor should you. But, uh, you know, he brings in these guys as freshmen, builds them up, red shirts them, does all these things, has a football program reminiscent of uh, Wisconsin, but uh, reminiscent of football programs back in the uh, 80s where you were bringing these guys and you would red shirt them and, you know, you have strong offensive lines and strong defensive lines and strong defenses and strong running games. And when these red shirt freshmen become 22, 23-year-old seniors, then uh, that's when they hit their peak. And then you start the rebuilding process all over again. You compete for a Rose Bowl appearance. You compete for a Big Ten championship. You make your way into the top 15 in the country every three to four years, five years. That's what Kirk Ferentz does. Then those guys graduate and you start all over again. And they'll go four and eight and five and seven and work their way back up to where they are right now in terms of record-wise. But uh, yeah, Iowa frauds not happening. They're done. Really quickly, Oh, okay, I'll say this. Washington State fires head football coach Nick Rolovich for not getting 
COVID-19 vaccine tested as the state mandated, as it takes into effect. Now, Rolovich was up here speaking about, well, because of my religion or because of my religious beliefs, I uh, don't uh, think that I should be able, that I should be mandated to take this vaccine. Okay, well, coach, if you're, if you're because of religious beliefs, doesn't allow you to take the vaccine, then that means for smallpox, for measles, for the flu. I mean, that, if that's the case, then you shouldn't be vaccinated for anything. And if you're vaccinated for all of these things and you're sitting there talking about, well, the Lord, the Lord will take care of me for COVID, but it won't take care of me for the flu. Then you're full of shit and get the hell out of here. So the man with the highest paid uh, employee in the state, he is no more again, like Kyrie. If you want to die on that hill. All right. Hey man, be my guest, be my guest. But what the school said in the statement, he was like, look, we have no, uh, we have no other choice due to the requirements set forth in Washington. Governor Jay Inslee's proclamation 24 21 14.1 Nick Rolovich is no longer able to fulfill the duties as football coach at Washington State University. So there you go. So I'll get into Ed Orgeron later. I was speaking about him not keeping his job. I thought he'd be fired at the end of the season, and he is going to be fired at the end of the season. LSU was just announcing this so they can go ahead and get a head start on getting their next football coach. Don't know if it's going to be Jimbo Fisher. Don't know if it's going to be James Franklin. Don't know if it's going to be Urban Meyer. Don't know who it's going to be, but LSU is going to go big game coach hunting, and why not get started on the season a little bit early? Only USC is ahead of them in terms of you know, putting together something where they can go ahead and uh, see about getting themselves a high-profile head coach. So that's it, man. I am done. I am out of here. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Download, rate, review, subscribe, follow anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm going to end this with my favorite, one of my favorite songs of all time. I hear a symphony, special dedication going out to all the young ladies throughout my life who I've been attracted to and fell in love with. So there's a special dedication going out to them with the song recorded live. Diana Ross, Flo Ballard, Mary Wilson, two of the three absolute gems, absolute beauties, absolute queens, absolute Nubian princesses. R.I.P. to the legends, Flo Ballard and Mary Wilson, the boss, Diana Ross, still out there kicking it, still out there seeing what she can do to uh, do some things. Wendell's World in Sports, I Hear a Symphony. Each time you speak to me, special dedication to Felisa Ham, special dedication to Shawnee Buchanan, special dedication to Stephanie Miller, special dedication to all of them folks. Music, please. (laughs) 